people who wield this AI stuff, if you can code, you'll be so much more powerful than people who cannot code. And I had a woman come to one of my events, uh, come up to me, introduce herself. She was very impressed with my demo. And then she said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all in on AI, but I can't code. Uh, what do I do? And you know, I gave her some some thoughts of like, oh yeah, you can do some prompt engineering, you can like, um, you know, create write some creative fiction. But to myself, I was thinking, wow, you, you there's not that much. You're completely at our mercy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because these developers, it's developers who can wield these APIs and combine them with code and run code from chat and write code from chat that are going to rule the universe. Welcome back to the Free Code Camp Podcast. I'm Quincy Larson, teacher and founder of freecodecamp.org. And each week, I'm bringing you insight from developers, entrepreneurs, and ambitious people who are getting into tech. Today, I'm joined by Sean Wang, a.k.a. Swix. I first interviewed Sean back in 2019. Back then, he had just quit his $350,000 a year finance job and taught himself to code using Free Code Camp. Sean was working as a full-stack engineer at the time, and it's a wild interview that you should go back and listen to. After, of course, you finish listening to this episode. Now, a lot of people thought Sean was crazy leaving finance, but this dude knew what he was doing. He has now risen through the ranks as a developer at tech startups, and now he's starting an AI startup of his own. He's already off to a strong start, having raised a $3 million pre-seed round from investors. This is the first time I've ever invited a guest to return to the Free Code Camp podcast for a second interview. But there was so much to talk about, I feel like I could have interviewed Sean for days. This man has been eating, sleeping, and breathing AI engineering for the past year. And I learned so much from talking with him. I'm confident that you will, too. If you dig this podcast... Be sure to leave us a review. I'm excited to read any feedback you have for me. Download a few episodes so you can learn on the go, such as, of course, my original interview with Sean. And tell your friends. Let's inspire more folks to learn to code and build careers for themselves in tech. Without further ado, my interview with Sean Wang. Welcome back to the podcast. How's it going, Sean? Hey Quincy, uh, really good, really good. Uh, it's been it's been a while. Yeah, in fact, I checked and I actually listened to our original podcast interview, which was from April fifteenth, twenty nineteen, which is more than four years ago. So it's been way too long since I've checked in. And also, I want to congratulate you. You're the first person to appear on this podcast twice, to my knowledge. <laughs> uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, it, it was a real pleasure the first time uh, we did it across the ocean i was in mexico uh and uh i think at the time about to go on my dive which i still remember very very fondly uh, but a lot of things have happened since then yeah and we're going to talk a lot about those things first i want to acknowledge that we're here in the mission mm-hmm. in san francisco mm-hmm. i flew in uh specifically so i can hang out with you and a few other folks and interview you and we're in this giant how would you describe this building uh, it's a co-working space that is a leftover from the mattress startup era and then blockchain startup era, and now it's a sort of AI co-working space. 
<laughs> Very cool. Whatever the hot thing of the moment is in San Francisco, this place has it. Yeah, and this place is cavernous. Like I was, I'm surprised I don't see like birds nesting in the rafters up there. Uh, yeah, yeah. There, there may be a bird uh, nesting at, near my house. Uh, so the super base guys, which I, who I'm close friends with, uh, stayed with me in small house, which we'll talk about, I guess, at some point. But uh, they, they saw a bunch of robins nesting. Um, so did you say super base? Yeah, super base. Okay, so on my previous podcast, I wasn't sure if it was pronounced super base or super base. Super base. Super yeah. base. Like, they named it after the Nicki Minaj song as a placeholder because they didn't, they couldn't decide on a name, and then it got too late, and they they just went with it. <laughs> I mean, that's one way to like. Yeah. It's only the name of your database. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's cool. Uh, I'll have to like catch up on my Nicki Minaj back catalog. <laughs> I'm not as <laughs> familiar with their work. Um, so you have been a very busy dev. Of course, you are now host of the Latent Space podcast, which, of course, there's a link in the show notes. You should totally check it out if you're interested in machine learning and AI applications. It's also now, as of today, the number 10 podcast in the U.S., Congratulations, uh, tech, tech podcast. Yeah, but yeah, it was it was such a shock to see it. We 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 just nudged out uh, Andreessen Horowitz from the top ten. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> you're gunning for the big leagues. That's that's impressive. And Andreessen Horowitz podcast, I do listen to occasionally. Yeah, the A16Z yeah, yeah. podcast uh, has some good talks, but not a top ten podcast anymore. <laughs> no, it, it was a brief spike because we had a famous person on. So um, we'll we'll maybe try to re- repeat that. But you know, it's a it's a long grind, and we're being a specialist tech podcast, being a tech and like an, an technical podcast. You don't expect to be like anywhere near the top, you know. Generally, the more general you are, the broader your appeal. But the more specialist you get, the fewer people out there are going to appreciate your work to the extent that if you're like some PhD working in a very specific field, yeah. you might be writing papers that only a small handful of other scientists read. Yeah, I do try to make it more accessible than the average uh, AI podcast. You know, I do listen to basically all the others. I have a list, by the way, if anyone wants to check it out. Um, because I learned in public... All my AI notes are on GitHub, and people actually ask me questions in my commits of like, hey, could you elaborate a little bit more on what you meant by this? And I, sometimes I do. Uh, so I do have a list of good podcasts and newsletters that I, if you are interested in diving into the same material that I do, um, it's, all, it's all in there. You, of course, mentioned Learn in Public. That's a very important movement that you didn't create, but you really popularized. Like everybody, <laughs> You helped. I think, you helped. <laughs> I think a lot of people look and say, wow. This learn in public, this is a really good approach for me. And I see so many people emulating that myself. I mean, you could argue that this podcast is my attempt to learn in public because I'm interviewing smart people like you and learning what I can from you about our very rapidly changing world. Yeah. And the changes in industry. And it's always an amazing experience to be able to sit down and talk with somebody like you for 90 minutes or so. So let's talk about where you were back in mm. April. 2019. Mm-hmm. This was pre-pandemic mm-hmm. when uh, you know all that terribleness was just. We were also naive, babe in the yeah, woods, right? Nine months away or whatever. Yeah, and maybe like wind time back and just yeah. do one of those cool like recaps for us. And I remember it quite well because um, that was a very special moment in my life. Uh, I was diving in Mexico and doing my slow mad thing from Netlify. And I basically ended up continuing with Netlify until about uh, the end of 2019, start of 2020, and basically kind of found myself somewhat trying to 
grow back and further further back in from the front end into the back end. Um, I felt a cultural shift in LFI that I didn't really identify with myself. So there was a bunch of push and pull factors uh, and decided that I wanted to go down a level. And Netlify being built on top of AWS, and I, I admired uh, AWS so much, I actually left uh, Netlify to join AWS. And uh, that would have been my job, uh, except for, for COVID hitting, um, so that I never actually went to the Amazon um, you know, offices because uh, because of COVID. So I, I on, onboarded onto Amazon uh, very, very uh, rapidly and hastily <laughs> and uh, spent a year there as a developer advocate for their serverless uh, platform. Um, and I really love just diving into all, all things Amazon. I think I just admire uh, a lot of things about how Amazon works, the weekly business reviews, the PR FAQs, which, uh, which, which they do, which is essentially before they do any releases, they do the press release for that announcement and then they work backwards from there. Uh, so a lot of the principles that you hear about, um, it's not just for show, like they actually live and breathe those exact same principles uh, in a day-to-day life. Um, and then, so fast forwarding from, from there, um, I was pretty happy at Amazon, uh, but I saw this startup opportunity come along which solved the one thing that I thought serverless did not do well. So What was uh, that? It was uh, orchestration, uh, the, the problem of workflow engines. And if you think about this, a lot of the valuable work in any tech company comes from repeated work, long-running work, background jobs, uh, very data-intensive work. This is stuff that people pay for because it takes up computer resources. And quite honestly, the serverless ecosystem had nothing to answer for that. Um, Serverless is very much operating on a short-lived request-response period. And anytime you needed to do something longer-lived, you had to work in a queue, you had to work in a cron job, you had to uh, stitch together some databases. And it was all very, very brittle. And this concept of a workflow engine that could take care of all of that complexity from top down, make it durable, fault-tolerant, scalable, uh, loggable, you know, all that stuff, um, that really caught my eye. So I, I left... AWS to join Temporal, which is the sort of workflow orchestration startup. I was employee 17 there, uh, and it turned out to be a good bet. I, I took a pay cut again. Every time, this is my uh, second pay cut. <laughs> yeah, so I took a pay. Uh, I was making about, I think, about 300k at Amazon um, as a as a senior. Uh, you know. Uh, so this person. is really your third pay cut. So your first pay cut yeah. was you you transitioned from fame, uh, and this was the headline. This was like everybody was like, "Wow, <laughs> like, did, I'm just did that really happen? Like, did he leave a three hundred fifty thousand dollar a year <laughs> career mm-hmm. on Wall Street?" Yeah. Uh, to transition into being a software engineer and spend like a year on that transition to take a huge pay cut, and then you, you took yet another pay cut going to Amazon. Or uh, I, I, from, got, I got my pay doubled. Up. I got my pay doubled from Netlify to Amazon, and then cut again when I left Amazon. Okay, because quite honestly, nobody pays like Fang. Right, Fang is just they're on another level, and honestly, Amazon is on the low end of Fang. Right? Yeah, Amazon's cheap. Um, I've been told that I could have made. More at Netflix. So your your salary is kind of like a a saw wave. Yeah, it's whatever, <laughs> right? Like at the end of the day, like uh, you know, I I don't have kids. Like I'm not optimizing for a short term uh, gain. I'm optimizing for sort of long term uh, learning. And uh, but yeah, I, uh, what I what I say to other people is that you know it's always a difficult pill to swallow. But every time I've left my job to take a pay cut, I've I ended up not regretting it. 
because I left it for something better because it took my time to consider it because you really want to be sure before you voluntarily walk away from, you know, 100K a year. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> All right. So allow me to recap. So you worked at Netlify. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if we talked on the previous podcast about how you even got into developer uh, relations, and developer relations yeah. and experience. Yeah. Uh, uh, somewhat by accident, I didn't know the job was available. So basically, uh, what happened was I was a software engineer at Two Sigma, and then I was very bored, and I started speaking at every single meetup in New York City, and people noticed my speaking and my writing as well. Um, and on the same day, both Gatsby and Netlify DM'd me, like the CEOs of both, DM'd me to, to ask me if I wanted to interview with them. And so I did interview with both of them, uh, and I failed both interviews. Um, but uh, there's a longer story there, I'm cutting it short. But um, basically, I failed the Netlify Solutions Engineer interview, which is the one I was interviewing for. They were like, no, you're not like exactly a fit. You don't have any experience in this area. I was like, I get it, totally understand. But then, then before they hung up, they were like, well, we have this other role that we're considering, and you might be interested in that because of your public speaking and your writing. And I was like, what is that? And they were like, this, this thing called Developer Advocate. Uh, and so I ended up being essentially the first or second. Like We, we started within a month of each other uh, with Divya. Uh, hire at Netlify for developer uh, relations. And uh, yeah, I, I didn't know. I landed not knowing what I was supposed to do. I landed not not having a manager at all. You know, I was employee 30, I think. And just figuring it out for the next two years. <laughs> wow. So I'm sure all this is sounds like, like a recap within a recap. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, sorry about the messy narrative. Chronologically, you left finance, you worked as a software developer, you learned in public. That seems to have been key to you getting this opportunity, exactly. by the way, is because I, the story I seem to recall is like you wrote some blog post or some tweet or something that just really caught on, resonated with a lot of people. Yeah. And that's how people started considering you like a developer experience. Yeah, uh, I, I'd done a bunch of React stuff, and uh, Danny Abramov had noticed me from there, and then he started being, like, I guess, an unofficial mentor for me, which uh, really helped unlock uh, a lot of things in my life. Uh, so I'm very grateful to him, very grateful for the React and JavaScript community for recognizing that, you know, as a relative newcomer, I could say something, I could still contribute something, you know, as, as a bootcamp grad, as a free code camp grad, uh, that uh, my voice or my learnings mattered. Um, and it, it felt really... It felt like not so long ago that you know I was kind of tweeting into a void and uh, and not knowing the difference between CJS and MJS or you know all the other package formats that, that might be out there. So uh, yeah, it was it was it was really really uh, comforting and nice. And Netlify took me in, and and uh, I definitely grew up a lot with them. Uh, I, I think that Netlify was really ahead of the pack with the Jamstack uh, thing. Vercel overtook it, um, <laughs> uh, and then uh, I got drawn into the more and more into the back end. So I started uh, being the maintainer for the Netlify CLI. I started working on the, the serverless uh, mocking platform and then eventually left Netlify to go down one layer into AWS, which Netlify built on top of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so, okay, going back to your time at AWS, you were really interested in orchestration. Mm. What about it? What is Orchestration, oh, exactly. Man. To simply put it, like obviously yeah. people hear about like Kubernetes, yeah. all these different tasks yeah. that need to be automated. But yeah, so okay, this is great. 
Um, it's been a while since I have to do this. Uh, so, <laughs> the, 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 the problem of orchestration means making sure that A happens, uh, you know, B happens after A, C happens after B, uh, in sequence, in parallel, through thick and th- through like failure of any individual machine or network in between. Uh, that is logged uh, f- for every every single step. All of that is orchestrating systems. Um, whether you're or- orchestrating individual serverless functions from function A to B to C to D, or you're talking about microservice A to B to C, or from my service to an external foreign API that I don't control, waiting for something to happen in real life with a human labor. Uh, uh, fulfillment and then coming back and then continuing to, to to execute some other tasks. So the typical framing that I offer for this is think about an Uber ride. Uh, so everyone's familiar with Uber rides, and actually uh, I'll just talk about like yeah I'll talk about Uber rides, but actually uh, Temporal came out of Uber Eats. Um, so for Uber ride, what, hap- what has to happen? You you press a button, and from that button press, it, it initiates a matching algorithm. Um, it matches you with. Uh, driver, driver has to be notified. Driver has to come pick you up. Uh, you you get on, you get on, and then you, you you know takes you the rest of the way. You get off. You have to rate the driver, tip the driver. They have to send the billing emails. Um, you know if if there's any sort of uh, cancellation of the trip, if there's any change in de- uh, destination of the trip, like there's a billion things that can happen all through that process. So imagine setting up the individual components of these lo- this logic that is asynchronous and happening spread out over time. It's not within this, the, the lifetime of a single HTTP request, right? Which, which needs to complete, it, let's say, within uh, 300 milliseconds. Um, here you're talking about a trip that can last for minutes, hours. Um, and so there's some workflows that I worked on that last for days, weeks, months, years. Um, and it's really all a subset of the same thing, which is orchestration. How do you ensure that one thing happens the, after the other? And um, how do you ensure that, let's say, if one of your machines go down or if one of your clients go, go offline, if you boot them up again, um, they, would, they would continue to function as planned, right? So all the typical way that you handle all of this is you put things in a queue, you uh, write some state machines in a, uh, in a database, and you control all that with a cron job inside of, uh, uh, inside of some serverless logic somewhere or some server full logic. Um, but that is a very brittle and hard-to-test abstraction. And really what workflow engines and the orchestration problem is is tying all of that into a single function top to bottom that you can write um, in half an hour. Uh, and so that's... Once, once I... Understood that that is effectively the equivalent of a application, just like the way like React has componentized uh, individual UI elements in in a, in a workflow environment or, or a sort of workflow orchestration environment. You can componentize long running jobs. Um, then I was very interested. <laughs> yeah, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about what Temporal is. Mm-hmm. Temporal is an open source framework that comes out of Uber. Uh, actually, we used to run Uber Eats as well as uh, as something like 200 other use cases at Uber. And basically, it is a long running orchest- uh, long running service orchestration framework, right? So you could uh, would uh, set up a temporal cluster and then start calling to it uh, and giving it handles to call you back um, to to execute any any kind of long-running work. Um, and it would persist everything, log everything, scale everything, uh, even route things for you in a, in a very scalable fashion. So Netflix would use it to do their media processing. Um, so when you upload a... Uh, when, when, you know, Netflix Studios uploads a single video, they actually send it and spread it out to, like, 
12 different servers uh, to cut it down to different sizes for different uh, um, uh, devices. Um, Coinbase would use it for cryptocurrency transactions. So f- uh, for those who don't know, like a Bitcoin transaction, you typically take six confirmation and sometimes that, that can take uh, a couple hours to do. So on one hand, you have cash, which basically completes instantly. And the other hand, you have cryptocurrency, which takes an hour to 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 execute and you need to just kind of wait for things to happen in real life. And obviously the, the, the most high profile example of this is Checker, which uh, for those who don't know, is a background check API. So when you're hiring people in the gig economy, you need to sort of go through the onboarding of, uh, do they have a driver's license? Uh, you know, is the driving record clean? You know, if I'm going to hand them one of my cars, like I need, to, I need to check all these things. And some of them involves going to a courthouse in person and waiting for court documents. So by imagine writing a single function that is able to execute, execute to a certain point, pause, wait for a result for, of that real-life action, and once that real-life action is resolved, returns and it continues executing where it left off. And all of this is robust to any outage in the system. When it goes down, it's all persisted because every single step of the function execution is persisted to a database. So it's what you would have to write yourself if you wanted to make a robust, long-running application. And guess what? You know, in, in a lot of tech businesses, the most valuable parts of your business is long-running applications. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So essentially, it might be... Like you'd you'd have a server running temporal, and all your other things would just check back in there as a source of truth to make sure that like okay, these previous tasks have executed and we're safe to to start this. So it's not like it would be an oversimplification or perhaps incorrect to think of it as just a whole bunch of cron jobs that are like in if then logic or like. That is a simplification that kind of works, right? Um, but to do it well, I think, takes a bit, quite a bit of engineering and battle testing. And these guys have battle tested it to the size of Snapchat. Uh, so, it, uh, so by the way, Temporal also runs Snapchat stories. Every single snap. Taken. So what's the scale we're talking about here? Like how um, many transactions per hour? I, I, don't, I don't know. So that, you know, that's the fun part of open source. Uh, you release software and they run it without telling you. <laughs> so yeah. you don't know. All we so, know, all we do know, is what Uber handled, which was you know in the thousands of uh, RPS uh, requests per second, and uh, that's good enough. And uh, did the Snapchat team like were they committing PRs and opening issues yeah. on Temporal? Yeah, 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 yeah. So is even though was, Uber was doing this to scratch their own itch, so to speak, yeah. uh, Snapchat was also able to come in and potentially help improve the software yeah. itself. Netflix, Airbnb, Coinbase. Yeah, um, and that's Stripe. Right there, that's the kind beauty of, of open source. That's how open source works. And yes. a lot of people think open source is, you know, overworked people doing work on their uh, time off. They're they're just hobbyists. They're interested in contributing <laughs> to open source, and that is a significant portion of open source. But there's a whole other world of people who are on the clock working at Snap or working at uh, Airbnb or some of these other companies that also rely on these open source tools and they are essentially kind of paid to help maintain and extend the functionality of these open source tools. Yeah, um, and, and this was honestly, I think, a golden period in terms of large companies like Uber and Airbnb um, allowing their employees to work on open source on company time. Because essentially, you have to look at it from in terms of intellectual property. 
essentially what you're doing is you're, you're using your time at Uber to work on uh, open source, which then can, can, you can leave and make into a startup. Uh, and so this is your exit option after, after <laughs> when you, uh, I think this window is closed now because everyone's going to realize what, the, what this game is. But for, for a brief period of time, for the past six years, if you worked at a big co, you would write an open source framework and you would say, this is big enough that we used it at, at you know, household name X. And then you leave the company, you, you start a startup that's based on that. So essentially commercializing the open source project yeah. by... Creating like a hosted instance with yeah. SLAs, yeah. service layer agreements. Yeah. But you like you you like get so agreements. much out of the marketing out of the way. You, you like the cost of R and D is paid by your previous employer. Uh, it's really great if you can get the previous employer to agree. So it's almost kind of like a reverse of the you know brain drain from academia going to commercialize their projects. Yeah. Stanford or whichever university, public like yeah, U- the UT Austin. They're they're underwriting this research, and then the researcher is going and getting funding to create a commercial. You know, um, commercializing the project. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I would say like the universities caught on much faster than the <laughs> the companies did here, because <laughs> universities, uh, I think most of them have this rule now that if you commercialize any research, uh, they get to have like a stake in in whatever you you start you know doing. Right? I don't know if you've seen those kinds of rules. Uh, there's there's sort of uh, each university these days has like commercialization of research departments where they'll say like you know we'll, we'll take like. A percent, not not nothing huge. Just we'll take a percent. Yeah, it's like you you, bur- you started it here. You With know? a big enough basket of research, though, that adds yeah, up. That, that adds and that's up. like that a significant contributor to their endowments. I yeah. imagine. So Berkeley is is the one that uh, most people should know. Obviously, Stanford is huge, uh, but Berkeley has been doing a ton of interesting stuff with uh, serverless and databases and and all that stuff. And they are extremely commercially minded. Like if I started my career over today and like had and were young enough to go to college again, I might actually go to Berkeley because it has the best trade off of well it's a public school, but also doing extremely top tier work. Um, they started Databricks out of Berkeley, um, which is a thirty eight billion dollar company. Wow. Yeah. Um, and do you have any idea what percentage <laughs> I know, no, no, but uh, I mean, everyone's, you know, yeah, every, everyone's doing well, I think, uh, out of yeah. there. Uh, so so I, I have, uh, for those who are interested in Temporal, I, I, I did have a blog post. I had blog posts for both AWS and Temporal, um, of course, and uh, I called it the iPhone of uh, system design. And if you're ever interested in system design, interested in back-end orchestration, uh, this is kind of how I, 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 I talk about it. And, and this really came out of my experience at AWS because this is uh, I'm showing Quincy a chart here from my work at AWS. Like I worked on a blog post that was like this: if you wanted to set up a, uh, a reliable call to an outside service that included retries, you would have to set up three SQS queues and a single AWS Lambda function. And so then if you wanted to set up more calls and, and put that into a production system, this is the complexity of service that you oh have to goodness. build. <laughs> and it's this giant, this giant uh, branching, you know, there's probably like 50 different calls here. <laughs> yeah. And, and SQS is simple queuing service? service. Yeah, okay. it's, uh, it's I think the Amazon third or fourth uh, service that came out of Amazon. Yeah. S- AWS tool. So many yeah, yeah. acronyms. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and by the way, I'm going to do my best to like say what all these acronyms mean, uh, just in case you're curious, because I really don't like 
uh, when I listen to a podcast and I just get barraged with acronyms. Yeah, but like also, you know, for just so you don't repeat the names over and over again, you define it once yeah. and then you move on, right? Yeah, exactly. I'm not yeah. going to keep trying to say <laughs> simple queuing service. That's a tongue twister. Yeah, but so like, you know, this I actually put uh, this as a always, it's always in sunny in Philadelphia meme with the guy kind of pointing, just to wildly <laughs> to like the, the massive sprawl. Oh yeah, the, the guy who hasn't slept. Uh, yeah, I Charlie Day. Charlie yeah. Day, yeah. yeah he's yeah. got the bags under his eyes and yeah, he's yeah. smoking and he's, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, so the one way to, the way to reduce this complexity is have a central system because each of the, the problem arises when you have multiple queues all orchestrating a single lambda and then you have multiple lambdas and you have multiple cron jobs and then you have multiple DynamoDBs backing up the states of each, each individual lambda. It is a huge giant mess, right? Why not have a single system that orchestrates all of that, right? And that is the, 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 the idea of a single orchestrator uh, running your entire app. Um, so, so yeah, that is that is the that is the main idea. Uh, you know, I think the the API is particularly elegant, um, and it's also really nice what you get when you uh, take networking into consideration. So, assume that your your workload is not constant. Assume that you have some spikes. Let's say um, you're running Uber and some big event comes on and suddenly everybody needs cars. Yeah. Um, so in so a lot of people start journeys and you would be starting those execution of those functions, but you'd be bottlenecked by the existing machines that you have on. And under the temporal system, you just add more workers to the machine to take work off of the main orchestration loop. Um, and that would uh, ease the load uh, automatically because it does service discovery for you as well. And so like these kinds of backend orchestration systems have just worked it all out. They have like again tried and tested it at Uber scale. It's probably going to work for you. Um, and I, I just think it's a really really nice way to set up a backend system. Yeah. So it occurs to me that you've made so many transitions here. First of all, you transitioned yeah. from finance to I guess front end front end development, and then you transitioned to developer experience, developer advocacy. And then uh, you transitioned to essentially like orchestration, and you really went deep yeah. on that. Yeah, I went to KubeCon. Yeah, you know, and which what, is what Kubernetes I, conference? Yeah, and what what I made fun of was like, what's a JavaScript developer doing at KubeCon? You know, that this is where only Kubernetes people go. Uh, Did but you no, feel like a fish out of water yeah, there? Very much, very much. It, it was a very strange feeling because uh, for me. After a while of, of me, you know, doing my thing, I was recognized in every single JavaScript conference I ever went to, right? So, like, I was a known person. All my friends were around. Like, so sh- me showing up at a conference is, like, just showing up at the friend group meeting. Uh, and then going to this other conference, which is way bigger and nobody knows who I am, it's just a like, huge different experience. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting. Not only are you learning in, in public, but you're kind of, like... Starting over, starting over a whole lot. Yeah, it, 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 it almost feels like the hill climbing algorithm. Hill climbing. Like, and I'm going to explain a hill climbing algorithm to my best of ability for anybody who's not familiar with this concept. The idea is, okay, you want to get to the highest point you can topologically, right? So you start walking up a hill, and when you get to the top of that hill, you're going to have much better vision, and you're going to be able to see all the other hills, and you're going to see a hill that's taller. But in order to get to the top of that tall hill, you're probably going to have to climb down. And that's kind of what we were talking about with, you know, Sean essentially like having his salary and going and starting over <laughs> at the bottom of a different field. Yeah, little but you hill. start climbing that. Little, yeah. And then when you get to the top of that hill, you're like, wait, I see an even higher hill. Yep. And you have to rinse and repeat until at some point, you know, probably long after you're dead, like the, the tallest hill has been discovered. And, uh, but, you got pretty high, right? That's that's the idea. Uh, we shall see, because I'm also making 
all these decisions under imperfect information and there's a fog of war everywhere and the, by the way the ground moves underneath you so the things that used to be valuable no longer are and things that are you know things that you thought were uninteresting suddenly are very valuable uh, and i had that most recent mistake actually because when i moved on from temporal i had the opportunity to join hugging face uh-huh. and, I, and i said no to that the uh, the uh, xenomorph company the xenomorph company <laughs> Yeah, not the. It's kind of a strange emoji to choose as your mascot, but um, you know they're French. They there's a cultural <laughs> gap here. Um, but yeah, I had the op- I had both the CEO and CTO of Hugging Face DMing me saying that I would make a great fit there, and I was like, I don't think NLP has any future. And here I am a year later, uh, going all in on AI <laughs> NLP. Uh, NLP being natural language processing for, for those who don't know. Yeah, and. So Hugging Face, they're doing a lot of the more cutting edge research. They're coming out with a lot of the, the yeah. cooler tech. Yeah. Um, they're essentially the GitHub of AI. So they host a lot of open source models and only recently got into making research themselves. Mm-hmm. So this would be like as if GitHub you know, went from hosting repos to actually open sourcing code that you, you use from day to day. Yeah, like if they made their own web server or something like that. Or IDE, which they did. Yeah, yeah I guess they did. So, um, And I guess they made Copilot, which yes. we which can talk about as well. Yeah. So, I, just, so I, just, I guess GitHub is creating products in yeah. addition to just having the GitHub platform yeah. that people put their code on. I wanted to show you this uh, tweet from three years ago uh, where I was actually explaining hill climbing to someone, talking about how you have to climb uphill and, and then you have to go downhill to climb uphill again. You know, I had this poetic, beautiful analogy, and then Dan Abramov replies in the next tweet, and he actually draws a a, a little sort of word art, or what, what do you call it? Like a ASCII art, ASCII art, ASCII art diagram of the same thing, and it just communicates way better. And I said, this is why Dan gets the big bucks. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> he used two, uh, four words to describe something that I did use four hundred words for. Yeah, and. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very simple like local maxima is, I guess the the highest point you you can get like like in, around in you in global, yeah. you you describe that as like okay so the the tallest mountain in California I don't know what it is it's probably <laughs> in the Sierra Nevada range or something but obviously the the tallest mountain in the world would be Everest so mm-hmm. that would be the global maximum mm-hmm. in terms of reaching the highest point on Earth right so yeah it, that is kind of like poetic that he just jumped into your thread with his little ASCII art and and you had like four paragraphs it's very articulate prose and uh, it was no match for some you know for Danny some Rebellion. dashes and some yeah, <laughs> some yeah lines and dashes slashes. and and white space to be honest to yeah. just visually show don't tell you know this is the the, the ultimate uh, difference between show and showing and telling and I think uh, I try to keep this lesson in mind but I you know everyone has defaults and talents and Dan Abramov definitely has more talent than I do. <laughs> yeah, Dan Abramov, of course, being the the legendary developer behind, uh, he, he created the Redux library and then he got hired by Facebook and and has been maintainer of React. Yes, I mean he's de facto has been the face of React for the past five years. Yeah. Um, so even though he didn't create it, uh, most people would credit him with that. So, what inspired you in the first place? You you were at a decent. Local Maxima, yeah, right. Um, oh, being, I, being a React guy, going to conferences, doing front end development, yes. doing developer 
advocacy within front-end development uh, through Netlify, if you want to call it like a, a front-end company, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they kind of abstract away some of the back-end stuff. Yeah. What is the source of courage or where do you get your willingness to just completely start going down a hill in, mm-hmm. when you're already up so high just because you see something that you think is slightly taller? Like, I think a lot of people would sense apprehension. A lot of people would be like, well, I'm pretty comfortable here. I'm making a decent wage. I've got, you know, the respect of my colleagues. You know, I've faced similar things. I was a teacher. I was a school director. I was respected among school directors in my very small peer group, you know, out in Southern California. And I decided to go into tech and everybody thought that was like a weird decision. Were there people that were questioning your judgment when you were leaving or, or did most people say like, I'm glad you're doing this. It's not for me, but I'm glad you're doing it. Did you have? Yeah, I think most people are supportive because ultimately, you know, it's my life, my choice, you know, but uh, no, I don't think, I don't think people outwardly question my judgments, but maybe they might have thought it to themselves. Um, and it doesn't matter because um, the way I see it, life is short and you should spend it do, doing the most interesting things in your mind. And the more you find out about what you're interested in, the more you should, I guess, pivot to that. And only a very few people start exactly when they're, where they're supposed to end up. And they look very lucky. They look very like they've known what they want to do all their life. Um, but there's a vast majority of us who start in a different place than where we really want to end. And the only time we figure it out is just by walking that route and just figuring it out from, from there. For me, as a former finance person, as, a, as a someone who's as a developer who's interested in business and the value of my work and my code, um, I follow the money. And I have always said that essentially there's a, what I call a front-end ceiling in tech where, all right, you know, you start, you learn to code. You're like, all right, which of these things is, is easiest to learn to code? You, you're like JavaScript, you know, runs in the front-end and the back-end, so I better learn JavaScript. And then you learn JavaScript and turns out the, the biggest framework is React, so you go to React. And it, sooner or later, like, you have never made a conscious choice, but you ended up a front-end developer. And there's a lot of front-end developers. All of them have no degrees. All of them have like about the same qualifications. And then you look up above you in an org chart, and you look at the CTOs, and you look around, and like nine out of ten CTOs are all from backend. And part of that is a generational shift, so that will change. But part of that is is a real, uh, real phenomenon that I've, been, that I've talked about in other podcasts. That um, for those interested, you can check the Change Log uh, podcast appearance that I did. Um, a real phenomenon where you're only valued by the IT budget that you control. And front-end developers do not control very much IT budget. But back-end developers, if you're paying a million dollars a year to Amazon, yeah, you're going to be CTO. Essentially, the budget you have in the organization, rather than how close you are to the end end users of your service... You think that's that's a more powerful determinant of internal kind of political power? Internal politics, absolutely. Budgets dictate a lot of things. Uh, And again, this is not a hard and fast rule, right? Um, I know front-end developers who make very, very good VP of Eng and CTOs. Uh, Honeycomb is one that promoted their head of front-end to VP of Eng. uh, But that is notable because it's so rare. (laughs) Most of the time, you want to be a back-end person if you want to be senior in tech. That makes a lot of sense. And so what advice would you have for somebody who's 
done what you just described. They they learned HTML, CSS, JavaScript. They learned some React. They may have learned Node. There's, so they, they consider themselves to be like a full stack developer, but you know, kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. In the sense that they can do a whole lot of stuff, but they don't necessarily know how to go back and like really optimize, like. Nginx or or optimize like like set up a load balancer or, or do a lot of more DevOpsy type stuff that you might also describe as technically in the realm of back end development. Like, what would be some natural first steps? So, what would be my advice? Yeah. Um, listen to your gut. You know, if your gut is telling you like, yeah, what Swix is saying is right, then yeah, do do what I did, right? But there's absolutely like, if you are just really comfortable, you love the front end, you do really well there. Then you're going to do great there. There's there's good money to be made in all different directions and all professions. And I'm not trying to say one way is the dis- definitive path, but just for myself, I I would have concluded that this is more valuable to me to spend my time in. It's more intellectually interesting as well because front end has a lot of crap, framework wars and fighting between really really things, small things that don't matter. And so I was definitely tired of that. React also seemed like in a bit of a, a slump compared to Svelte um, and, and some of the other changes going on. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I moved to backend, but I'm not recommending that everyone do that unless you are particularly interested in that. Then I give you the permission to um, because uh, it's been very rewarding for me. And I think you can make a lot of money and also fulfill your intellectual curiosity that way. So why not? Yeah. This question is going to sound absurd, maybe, to a lot of people at this point in the conversation. But since we're talking about backend development, I've heard that a lot of the promise of artificial intelligence uh, tools, at least as far as like coding and software engineering are concerned, it it may simplify the backend component more than it simplifies the frontend component. Is that a statement you would agree with? Do you think, mm. do you think that these tools are going to make life easier and make back-end developers vastly more productive before they make front-end developers vastly more productive? Yeah, I think it's possible, yeah. And I would say like I maybe like 60% agree with that. Yeah. Okay, and if that comes to pass over the next three or four years, if it becomes clear that like the world's going to need fewer back-end developers because that job becomes, I guess, more about babysitting artificial intelligence <laughs> and less about going in and like, you know, getting your hands ready, whereas... You know, other parts of the software development remain harder to bring automation into productively. Do you think you would still encourage people to get deep into black into backend, or do you think organizations will start to shift? Do you think budgets will shift, and thus the political power of being in control of a backend focused budget? If that budget is shrinking, do you think that there will be less value in getting into backend? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, I feel like the time scales that we're talking about really matter here. So the time scales that I'm thinking is like 50 years out. So it doesn't matter to any of us listening okay. to this. You know what I mean? Uh, it, it is slower moving than people think because uh, the, the ability of these AI systems to independently and autonomously run code and, and, and do the things that we need backend code to do um, isn't quite there yet, right? And, and it's, it's, it's kind of like self-driving cars. I remember actually telling an, an investor friend of mine in 2015 that self-driving cars were just around the corner and just you wait. 
you know, and they still haven't really happened, right? You know, we have driver assistance, but we don't have self-driving cars. And so the last mile of these things tend to take a lot longer than the first 90 miles of this thing. And so I, I feel, I, I suspect we'll have the similar uh, effect. Okay. And this is a good opportunity for us to start talking about the role of artificial intelligence because yes. we, I don't even know if we've mentioned it yet in this interview, <laughs> but of course, you transitioned to orchestration. You were really big on that. Yeah. And you've since made yet another transition. Yes. Uh, you are now the host of Late in Space. Yep. Podcast focused on artificial intelligence engineering, mm-hmm. AI engineering, and the very rapidly evolving landscape of tools out there, LLMs and other tools, LLM, large language model like GPT-4. Podcast. Yeah. You have created this podcast with your friend. Alessio. Uh, yeah. Alessio um, Finelli. Alessio Finelli. Yeah. And what's his background? He is a former software engineer and founder, uh, had a small exit, and then turned into VC. And he, I met him as a VC in his previous firm, 645 Ventures, uh, because I started investing as an angel investor around about COVID period. So I set up a Discord. He joined my Discord. And then we started talking every single day. Again, so much happened because of COVID because there's no in-person meeting anymore. Everything happens online. Right. And so we just hung out quite a lot online on, on Discord and uh, got to know each other, trust each other a lot, um, and uh, eventually started the, the podcast together. Um, I, uh, the podcast wasn't the first thing I started. So Latent Space was originally a newsletter. And uh, because I'm just a much better writer than I am a speaker, I definitely don't feel like I'm particularly optimizing for the ability to speak. You know, I'm not like a, a Kelsey Hightower, I never will be. I just need to be able to get my points across, and I think that's fine for me. But I, I know I'm very good at writing because people tell me I'm good at writing. So I started off writing, and and honestly, the first thing that really kicked it off for me was Stable Diffusion. That was my first like, okay, you know, all the other demos have been cute, but this is game changing. Like I did not know our computers were capable of this, and if if I've been wrong about this, what else am I wrong about? Right, and I think that's something that uh, just like a sort of meta learning algorithm. When you update, people tend to update too slowly you need to be able to go from zero to one extremely quickly in tech because then you can go from slightly late on this to up to speed instead of slightly late on this and then a little bit less late, more late, more late, more late. Uh, And most people are on that slow update path when you actually need to overcorrect. And so so a very simple question to ask is if I did not think this was possible and this is possible today, what will be possible tomorrow? That sentiment that you said just... The moment something proves itself to be possible, you have to quickly adapt your expectations. Yeah. And, you know, for example, I saw this AI pizza commercial and it brought together all these different tools. And this guy from some average, I think he's like a, a designer or something, he was able to create this video in about three hours that used a whole bunch of different tools uh, to AI to create the music. AI to write the script, AI to create the on-screen, you know, visual elements, and, and the, to actually animate, you not not photorealistic humans, but when they're moving around and stuff, they look real enough, and they're not. It's like this person doesn't not exist. dot com, yeah. but it's in video format, yeah. and you're seeing these people who look like people who might be at a pizza restaurant that you, if you were to walk in, you just see random people walking around. Of course, the pizza looks uncanny and it's don't watch this while you're eating 
It was very disturbing for me, and I would never show my kids this because it looks like a, a pizza commercial created by aliens. But once I saw that, I it really like wow, like AI generated video is not that far away, and it it started to really open up my mind as far as like how much of the world could potentially be in jeopardy if these tools do get dramatically better in terms of like, and when I say in jeopardy, I don't mean like necessarily only in a bad way, <laughs> but, but I do mean like if you're an actor and you're in pizza commercials and you're one of those people that like is slicing up the personal pan pizza and with the kids, like putting it in your mouth and stuff, the days of that job may be numbered <laughs> because the moment they figure out how to consistently have five fingers on a hand and the moment yeah. they figure out consistently how pizza should look and what the texture of the cheese should look like when it's being stretched and stuff. Yeah. I don't know Game that over. there are going to be a lot of people that are going to want to spend, you know, a week filming a pizza commercial. No. Uh, in fact, uh, there's a little bit of controversy this week because the most recent Marvel TV shows, um, secret invasion came out and the opening title sequence was completely ai generated and the staff of the, on that team usually it's you know whole screens worth of artists and animators and whatever uh it was just cut to six people wow. uh so the, all the artists are up in arms about it and for me it was like i mean you know they're well within their rights to do this um the the uh, the output looked bad i i didn't like it at all right so i kind of agree with the artists but I don't think it's an ethical thing. It's just a business decision. Do, yeah, you, do and, you think this is the best way to do your job? And I will tell you, like, as a person who spent, I don't know, tens of thousands of waking hours like typing and, mm-hmm. and writing prose, writing tutorials, writing books, things like that, the output of even GPT-4, which is probably the most sophisticated output you can get from an LLM, By far. it's very lacking like like a human human writers can do dramatically better in terms of quality but they cannot match the cheapness and where there's economic incentive to save money and a studio like marvel's like you know we can cut our budget from you know a million dollars to create this intro to to fifty thousand dollars yeah something like that like you you can get outraged but at the same time that's what companies are going to do they're going to cut costs you're too expensive as a human it's fine. Yeah. It, it just is what it is. But also, you know, for what it's worth, Marvel probably had the money to spend. They chose to do this because it would exactly generate the kind of discussion that we're having right now. Ah. Right? It's a marketing thing. So you thing. think it is a marketing thing? Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely, you know. It, it's just, it, like, it doesn't have to, it just has to provoke conversation. That's really it. <laughs> yeah. I've seen, like, music videos, like uh, the Gizzard Band. I can't remember what it's called. Like, they, they did, like, a, a fully ai generated video and it was cool for a minute but then you're kind of like yeah it's kind of like yeah it was ugly and and this this secret invasion intro is is really really ugly i i don't like it but it provokes conversation yeah definitely did and that's one thing i want to talk to you about we've got so much to talk about but how much of the discourse around ai is just hype for the sake of like over overestimating the potential because you just said a moment ago you think it might be 50 years before ai are smart enough to basically handle back-end development by themselves without a ton of humans in the loop, maybe just a few humans in the loop. It, can you elaborate on that? Like, right now, the GPT, for, uh, the OpenAI team are doing, like, this world tour, and they're going around and to all these different countries, and they were on uh, TV with, like, Biden and uh, 
uh, Modi from India, right? <laughs> like, like the, everyone, sure. Yeah. Is this just them overstating the potential for the sake of getting more people to take their product seriously? Or like how, how much of it do you think is hype yeah, and how much of it do you think is reality? Yeah, there's an S-curve. It's not a linear line. Um, and so what I mean by an S-curve is things accelerate and then they kind of smooth off, but they still, they still keep going, kind of going. Um, it's kind of like how... Remember during COVID, you were looking at the case counts every day and you were like, this, this exponentially goes up every week. Um, so it's going to take over the world, the entire universe, the entire you know, known galaxy uh, in like two days. And then it didn't happen. And, and because S-curves curve off, you don't really, nobody tells you about that. Uh, you're just kind of, we're just in the middle of the S-curve is what I'm saying right now, where like every, everything's kind of accelerating very, very quickly. And we don't really know where it curves off, but they always curves off. Um, what we're in is what they call an AI summer. And there have been multiple AI summers in the past. Uh, I remember the past one in 2017, a friend of mine was very, very caught up in it and overinvested in that and it turned out to be a complete dud uh, well, in 2017. To, to be fair though, like there, there's been the AI summer, AI winter cycle for decades. For decades. I mean, back in like the 1960s, decades. 1950s, people were like, we think we can reproduce an, a, yeah. a human brain. We're really bad at predicting <laughs> the future. We're really bad at this. But, but there's never been anything like this yeah. crazy bonanza where, you know, 100 million people are using ChatGPT. Mm-hmm. Right? And mm-hmm. uh, entire like like... I'm getting emails all the time from yeah, people yeah. who are using GPT to write the email. Please don't do that, by the way. I will block you if if I send if I, if you send me some email clearly written by an AI. I don't have time to read, you know, point zero 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 five cents per token yeah. emails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like if your email is weighted in like token cost, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so what I'm saying is, uh, I guess what I should say is, I think uh, you don't underestimate the potential. Potential is very high. We just don't know when it realizes its potential. We're on the way to re- towards realizing its potential. I think it's broken through quite a bit with ChatGPT. Um, and uh, I think the, the, the reaction is so far appropriate. If we get to the point where we start bombing data centers, that's when I would say we've gone too far, uh, which is the actual thing that has been proposed, by the way, um, from the AI safety people. Yeah, but like that's, that's more of an extreme yes. perspective. There are extremists who think that the responsible thing to do if we are about to create Skynet is to kill the people who are currently willfully creating Skynet. I almost feel like the discussion around Skynet and stuff feeds into the mythos that these systems are way more powerful than they actually are, though. How are you so sure? You know what I mean? Like, the, the, I, I the, mean, there's this this thing. Like, it's like okay, if you're like even zero point one percent unsure, the the zero point one percent is existential uh, ruin for all of humanity. So you're multiplying at 0.1% by infinity. So I've heard that this is <laughs> referred to as, what is it, Schrodinger's pickpocket, pickpocket yes. or something like that? Sure, mugging. Schrodinger's mugging. Yes. Can you explain what that is? I can't remember. Uh, I, I, by the way, I think, is, is it Pascal or Schrodinger? It may be Pascal. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it's Pascal's mugging. So basically, uh, someone comes up to you in the street, says, give me $10 or you will go to internal damnation, Right. And let's say you don't believe in internal damnation. You don't believe this person can, can give you internal damnation. But there's like 0.1% chance that you might, it might happen. So you give the $10. 
then he comes back to you, asks for hundred dollars, asks for thousand dollars, doesn't matter because the infinity case, the, the the very small chance is multiplied by infinity. Therefore, you always lose to the the sort of median outcome, which is giving over your money. So that's just Pascal's mugging, which is in the off chance that you're wrong, the the wrong is infinite. Therefore, you always have to pay the cost of being wrong. Yeah, even though it's completely theoretical. And kind of a similar, which by the way is also the cause for global the, the case for doing anything about global warming which is a very tricky topic right yeah yeah well i was thinking about it in terms of lottery like you you could be rich beyond your wildest imagination if you buy a lottery ticket so by foregoing buying a lottery ticket you're you're kind of like maybe maybe it's not an apples to apples though because the mean exactly the case, the expectation it, of a lottery ticket is, is actually set and known yeah uh, whereas here Eternal damnation or the end of humanity as we know it uh, is not known because we okay. haven't seen it before. Whereas we see lotteries every week. Right. Okay. So my question would be then, uh, to what extent do you think that the hype around AI, um, you know, some of which could just be this is a summer and this is what people do during AI summers. They go on these kind of victory laps where they talk up the accomplishments of their, their models and, and of other products that they built. Do you think that it's it's healthy <laughs> for for us to be like talking about these AI uh, as though they could be the end of civilization when I can't even get an AI to, you know, do very basic things for me accurately? Well, it can do basic things accurately. You know, some things, it, it fails at some just, things. Yeah. Yes, it's not it's not perfect, um, but it is increasingly better at it, and we can measure how how much better it's getting, and we are measuring real improvements. Yeah. Um. So yeah, there's some there's a yawning gap between where we are today and where it needs to to go to to be considered a real threat. Um. But it also depends on what timeline you're operating under. I, I assume that you and I are operating under within our lifetimes and anything that happens after our lifetimes, we kind of don't care about. Um, whereas these people are like, if we're off by a few centuries, doesn't matter. We're talking about the existence of the human race here. You know, that's the, that's the timeline that these guys are thinking about. Interesting. So they don't think, and I don't want to put words, if anybody listening is concerned about like AI safety. Yeah. And by the way, they also don't think that it will take a few centuries. Like they think it will, most, the median estimate for transformative AI, TAI, as, as people call it, uh, is between, somewhere between 2035 and 2050. So yeah, they are, they're all like, yeah, this is within all that. So time. they do think that it's urgent and thus we won't have plenty of time to figure out a exactly. better solution. Yeah. The way that Eliezer Yukowski, who's kind of the figurehead of this, of the AI safety. The final movement, boss of Reddit. <laughs> final boss of Reddit. Yes. Because of the neck beard and the, uh, the, the hat. Fedora. Fedora. Um, this is true. Machines learn and think um, hundreds and thousands of times faster than us. And machines learn and communicate perfectly. We, like you and I, we could spend five years talking to each other and I would not get everything in your head. You would not get everything, everything in my head. Machines can just transfer weights. Um, so if we were to let one out of quote unquote the box, which is a system that we control, uh, if we were to let one out, um, they would evolve much faster than us. And it just takes a differential rate of evolution for something to just outrun us because we are, as far as they are concerned, we are trees. Yeah, and, and trees do think, but they think extremely slowly Yes, in the sense that like their roots will gradually shift 
toward a place that might have more water. Yeah. Or they'll they'll build up more bark on a side that's more exposed to wind or something. I don't know. I'm I'm not an expert in trees. Yeah. No, but, but, you know, like, we are to trees as as AI is to us. You know, um, and 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 so yeah, I think there is some concern about like. Just having a healthy respect for an anim- uh, a thing that we do not control, uh, and if you believe in evolution at all, then evolution is happening to these things because we are honestly spending the the, the compute to to do it. The compute of uh, GPUs, billions uh, of dollars, billion, yeah, building the, training these models, yeah. That is that is the equivalent of evolution, uh, to as far as a language model is concerned, um, and it is not exactly the the kind of evolution that you would see in a in a natural environment, but it might be better. Um, so, for example, a lot of uh, people talking about the biological basis of intelligence often say things like the brain does not do back propagation, um, and I would you know, and so the, the counter argument would be that it doesn't have to like the artificial intelligence has no bearing or no need to imitate natural intelligence it could be better uh just like uh you know planes were inspired by birds but fly nothing like birds yeah yeah and there's the famous dykstra quote like the question of whether uh an artificial intelligence can think is like the question of whether a submarine can swim (laughs) it's just a kind of like a silly nonsensical question question. (laughs) yeah Yeah. does the physics work yes okay yeah, and, and frankly, and so, so, if we can get things done, yes. then it, it's effectual. And yes. that's that. I mean, I'm a practical person. <laughs> I'm just concerned with getting things done. And yes. yeah, so um, I would encourage people to who are who are skeptical about, you know, hey, I ran my test on ChatGPT and it failed. Therefore, the whole thing sucks. Uh, that is a throwing the baby out of the bathwater type yeah. of type of thinking. Um, when you do that sort of thing, you are doing an amateur version of what people call evals, uh, evaluations. And there are very professional grade evals that have been very rigorously thought through by academics. And um, take a look at them before you make a, make a final decision. Um, so the big ones to, take care, to think about are MMLU um, and Big Bench. These are the giant uh, eval of evals that have been accumulated by all the data scientists uh, studying this stuff. Um, and then they're they're made up of individual components um, that have about thirty forty years of history. Um, I have a podcast on my I have an episode on my podcast called Benchmarks One Hundred and One that explains a little bit about the kind of rigor that you need in order to do these evals. So some of them would be like math questions that are probably in senior year high school or first year math that you would that you would need to to, to take in, in order to pass it. Um, some of that would be like AP Bio, AP History, AP, you know, literature. Advanced placement uh, yeah. here in the U.S. Yeah, that's a U.S. And and then it can, of course, pass the California bar exam, which is yes, I think the hardest bar exam in the country. <sighs> you know, is it's it? the one that more people fail. It's so, got like okay. a 25% pass rate. Yeah. So and when you read those headlines, by the way, it, it, it also bears having some healthy skepticism about reading through the headlines and going, oh, it passed a mock example of the bar exam, okay. not the actual bar exam. And the mock example is, you know, it's maybe a little bit easier to pass, right? So something like that because it doesn't take the actual bar, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Although I, I guess in theory, if they really wanted to put it through the test, they might be able to secure they permission. They really should. Yeah. Uh, and honestly, that'd be a really good test. It, it's just, is very hard. And I'm sure the, the, and it's a lot easier to just give it some sample questions. And exactly. See how it did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah typically when they say like, you know, pass the GMAT or something, they would, they would pass a sample of the GMAT. It was like a practice exam, right? And not the actual thing. Um, but, but yeah, long story goes to show that um, every, with every passing year, 
these language models can match or exceed human ability in these standardized tests. They probably cannot uh, match your personal voice and tone, but that wasn't a goal. They could easily try it. They, they, could, they could easily do it if they wanted to. They're not just not bothering right now. The goal is just to pass all these tests right. because then we have a general intelligence that we can ask to do whatever. And we can talk real quickly about how these are trained, and that's with mm-hmm. uh, human feedback reinforcement learning. That's the final step. Uh, the initial step is actually way more interesting, which is pre-training, right? Going back to this concept of a GPT, generative pre-training, um, they take hundreds of gigabytes of data scraped from the internet, like literal web pages from Common Crawl, which is the nonprofit that was started by a Google alum who left Google and started a competitor to Google. Mm-hmm. Uh, Common Crawl, cleaned up versions of Common Crawl, GitHub, uh, public domain books. Um, archive papers that have been published on the, the sort of web archive, um, and then Wikipedia. Um, so all those things are just sources of text. Um, GPT-3 was trained on 300 billion tokens worth of text. A token is three-quarters of a word um, for uh, irrelevant I reasons. Mean, it could be a full word, depending on the could word. could be a full word. Um, but, uh, yeah, so then you just sort of run these models for a few machine days, uh, sometimes weeks, um, and 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 basically train them until the, they're, uh, they have reached some kind of budget that you've predetermined. Um, and that's that's typically the process for the pre-training step. Then you get the instruction tuning and the RLHF and all the other stuff. Um, for those who are interested, Andre Karpathy did a state of GBT talk from at the recent Microsoft Build conference that in one slide had the four stages um, that I would recommend if you want a, a proper breakdown of this. Very cool. Yes. And as with that podcast, you mentioned Benchmarking 101 and that uh, that presentation, the links will be in the show notes. Yes, sir. So what inspired you to create this podcast? So just to be clear, like you, you said earlier, it was a, your uh, friend, um, what's his name again? Alessio. Alessio, yes. Uh, he was a, he had an exit, which by the way means when you, have some sort of event where you sell your company, and yes. and that could be, you know, the pu- company going public, but more more commonly, it's the company being acquired by another company. So he had some money, and he was probably able to like decompress from startup land and take some time to think about what he wanted to do next. And he started messaging with you on Discord. And, uh, and to be clear, he was a professional investor at Six Forty Five Ventures. He was one of their engineer investors types okay so, so is is that a common path for an engineer it's typical, a for a former founder, it's typical for a former founder to become a vc because after you've done it once you kind of don't want to do it again it's a very stressful job so you get to be on the reciprocal side of it <laughs> yeah you get to just dole out money it's great <laughs> it's a yeah. good life um uh but he's he's always had a technical bone in him and uh so he he, he gets very hands-on in, in their technical projects and i think a lot of vc firms these days are not just you know, we, we meet in a boardroom and we shake hands, that kind of VC. They actually have a significant engineering practice where they, they do some data-driven investing. Um, and so the, the firms that Decibel, uh, that Alessio has worked with um, do emphasize that. Yeah. And so you and him are messaging back and forth through Discord and you decide at some point... Uh, tell to me- start a podcast, yeah. Uh, so yeah. I started the newsletter first right, by myself because I, I, I wasn't sure how deeply I wanted to go into this thing because I'm not an AI person. I never did a PhD. I never, uh, I haven't done, you know, those courses on Kaggle or whatever. And 
just dipping my toe in, and I think I had about five to six months of success, um, just like making some observations, summing up news, the typical newsletter writer stuff mm-hmm. that is not that interesting. And I was just thinking I really wanted to step it up a notch. I wanted to interview people that were not being interviewed. Um, I love podcasting. I listen to podcasts all day long, including this one. So I was just talking about like, you know, I, I, I really wanted to interview some of these and, and ask the questions that have, that no one's asking. And, uh, and then Alessio was also looking to do some more public outreach as, as a VC you want to get visibility so that you can you know get in touch with the founders that you want to meet um, and so I think we have mutual interests in starting one I didn't want to start one by myself because I felt like I wouldn't keep it up you know the, the consistency it's, it's a lot of dedication and work needed to to do a podcast with and so yeah we, we teamed up and started from there and it's uh, it's been a really really wonderful journey so far we were right. four You're months in we, 18 we were, episodes uh, 18 right? episodes we just hit number 10 on the US charts yeah and, uh, congratulations and hopefully thank you uh, and hopefully we'll uh, we'll keep going uh, my ultimate goal is to sit down with Satya Nadella yeah well at the rate you're going with the guests you've had uh, that might happen <laughs> with the next year or two we'll see I, I don't know it, it could it could happen it could not happen I think you have to just have to be happy with the thing that you're doing at this very moment and yeah just make the, the best thing you could possibly do starting a podcast or starting a newsletter is a great way to meet people and learn from people uh have you? What advice would you have to somebody who's listening who's like, hey, I want to create a newsletter like Quincy's newsletter or a podcast like <laughs> Sean's podcast? Like, like, how do you go about deciding whom to talk to, figuring out like what to talk to them about? I, I, I don't want to get too meta since we're on a podcast, two, two podcast hosts. Yeah, I know. That's the number podcast, one but- favorite topic of podcast hosts is talking about how to podcast. Um, yeah, so I would say... I wasn't coming to this from complete scratch, right? I had made a few failed, quote-unquote, failed runs at podcasting before. And so I, I was somewhat familiar with that side of the business. But mostly I just am known from blogging and tweeting and mm-hmm. speaking, right? So I spent the last five, six years doing that. So I had a Twitter audience that was built up. I, had, I started with a list of, I think, something like 3,000 email subscribers, which, which is decent but not big, you know? Um, not like you with like your freaking millions of <laughs> people that you email every week subscribe to the free code camp email right? yes it's, yeah you uh, can turn it on in your free code camp settings <laughs> if you already have a free code camp free code camp news everybody has to opt five in. links yeah yeah the five links so uh, but, but no, so you, you start from there and like ha- cultivate some taste and cultivate a, a sense of what you really like to talk about and I think a lot of people when they start off have this pressure to talk about everything and to go too deep and go too long. And really, it's not about that. It's more about having insight, having personality, mm-hmm. making people laugh, having some like, new novel breakthrough that no one can find anywhere else. And if you just find, you just get, find that rhythm, I think uh, people will start to find that your stuff is something that they consistently like. They start to recognize your name, your profile, your, the thing that you stand for and the thing you talk about, and you'll gradually be pulled into, into those conversations. Um, so that is the traditional way of getting into uh, this stuff. And, and I think um, one of the things that I've been working on on the side is the fast-track way to do this, um, of like tac- the, 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 what I call the book of tactics, of how to thought lead. And so these are like the, the best of the best, I guess, uh, tricks and tips to, to do that. I hesitate, for, I hesitate to publish it because if I do, then like, if people take it too seriously without the heart, then 
um, then it might be really fake and then I might be blamed for like a whole bunch of threat Yeah, if, if you kind of follow the leader, exactly. you know where they're going, but you don't know why they're going exactly. there. And okay. it could be that they're going one direction, planning to bank another direction, but you don't know that and they yeah. know that. So it's kind yeah. of like chasing Zeno Zero. Yeah, exactly. So like uh, I was, I've been thinking about this a lot because I, um, I do some advising for startups and like there's some people who are like not in the cool kids club as far as tech is concerned and like they want to get in the cool kids, club, cool kids club. But like the cool kids don't spend any time thinking about how to get in the cool kids club. They just are cool. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like uh, just same, same thing about this, this like thought leading stuff. Like it's like, yes, these are the tools of a thought leader. These are like, hey, if you want to, uh, you know, make a name for yourself, go up to the biggest, baddest person you can find and take them down. Right. Very, very classic. That's like the classic That's a prison, prison advice. Prison <laughs> advice. It works. One of the top tech writers in the world, uh, Ben Thompson, you know how I got to start? How? He started his newsletter by saying what Clay Christensen got wrong about the iPhone and Apple. And he was correct and Clay Christensen was wrong. There was a change of guard from Clay Christensen being the, the, the leader in tech strategy towards Ben Thompson. He took the biggest, baddest person in the room, took him down. Interesting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it ha- this, this is one of the like, 10 tricks that are out there, and it just works. Like, you, you have to do the work and be right, but like, when you do it right, it, it's going to work because like, it's, it's been time tested in, in the prison and out of, outside of it. So, <laughs> so, we get off of like prison survival advice. And <laughs> I am really interested, though, in how you decide whom to talk to. Like, okay. how, where do you see the space going? What do you think is relevant? Because yeah. there are probably tons of like, you know, it, it's probably a VC funding bonanza where yeah. people are just creating, you know, thinly veiled, you know, chatbots that mostly just have some specialized prompts that sit on top of GPT and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, I imagine a lot of people are desperate to get in because of the hype surrounding the space and the, a lot of mediocre ideas are being funded. Yeah. How do you decide whom to talk to and what's actually important how do you find the signal in the noise yeah um so for us our first person that we could that we our first guest that we had on was logan kilpatrick who was just hired as developer relations at OpenAI uh, as their first devrel hire i've been a first devrel hire uh, so he knew of me i knew of him and we just we never met before but because he had this hot new job at OpenAI, uh, he was a really good opening guest and i've seen this advice before for other people that you want to be patient about waiting for your first guest because the first one sets the tone for the other ones. And there are a lot of big figures out there who will not give you the time of day if you're a nobody, but there are some others who are more generous with their time and will say, like, they'll, they'll, they'll take their time out of the day to help you up as a, as a newcomer, as a beginner. And um, it's this trade off of some, having someone big enough, but not too big, that would give you a big boost to, to start off with your. With your uh, guess because the first guess, the second guess, third guess will help you book the fourth, fifth, and sixth guess. Right. right? So, so this is wanna... from like a like a podcast, you know, I guess growth perspective. Yeah. But in terms of the quality of exactly. the guests, okay, yeah. And then it's it's like your authentic interest about what you what your covered domain is. And because AI is such a new domain, it's very vague what it is. There are AI podcasts out there and AI like, thinkers and funds and builders out there who are all over the place and um, no judgment on them. That's, that's the, the thing they've chosen to do, but I choose not to do it because I think that um, that spreads your audience very thin. No one really knows what they're getting out of you whenever they hear from you. Um, and you don't have any time devel- spent developing expertise in one area. And so what I've eventually ended up 
doing is defining this term of the AI engineer, which is the software engineer crossing over into AI, like myself, and then speak to exclusively people like myself. So, for example, I do not do anything to do with medical AI, right? Anything to do with brain or cancer imaging, I don't do. Anything to do with VR, I don't really do. Um, even like the text-to-image, text-to-voice stuff, I barely do. I, I do a little bit of it because text-to-image is so cool. But like, it's not a core thing. What's in the core thing, though, is vector databases, is code generation. It's AI UX, which is the when front-end developers do AI, they call it AI UX, right? AI UX, essentially making it easier to expose the power and the yes. utility of the AI yeah. going to beyond the developers text box. that are busy and trying to get things done quickly. Yeah, and for those interested, I had a meetup, which I, which I wrote up uh, with all the leading UX thinkers um, demoing their AI applications. And I just want to jump, because you have... Some AI applications that you've built. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and yeah. maybe you could just demo those. Obviously, this isn't a video podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to describe verbally yeah. what happens. So what, most people, when they use ChatGPT, they go to chat.openai.com. It's in a browser window. And then they pull out the app, and that's, that's the app that they use. Um, I found that limiting because I wanted to try all the other apps because I felt like um, all, people always tweeting interesting finds about Bard and Bing and hugging face and whatever else other apps so i built this little menu bar app um, that you can go to you can go to download on github it's open source it's called small menu bar and what it does is it small s-m-o-l yeah yeah i just that's the brand that i've chosen i also bought the domain small.ai uh, i just kind of like things that are four letters and start with s because it starts with it's like swix, like and swix. Small. exactly <laughs> i just think it's like a cute branding thing nothing nothing bigger than that oh i also think that making things smaller is a good mission that everyone can get behind yeah, um, especially when you're talking about models AI. that cost like billions of dollars no, to train. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's a problem that I can work on for the next 10 years and not run out. And this is something I've been looking for as a prospective founder. Um, so small AI, uh, so small menu bar is a little menu bar app that pops up, pops on your Mac. Uh, someone's done it for Windows as well. But essentially it starts off with a blank screen, uh, after you log in of ChatGPT, a bit, uh, Bard from Google, Microsoft Bing, and then Anthropic Cloud if you have an, uh, access to Anthropic Cloud. Um, you can swap it out if you want. Uh, we're implementing other providers for other kinds of chats, including local chat if you'd want to send it to an external server. But this is what you get. Right. So these are like the big four kind of consumer. Yeah, these are the big four. I would say the best four. Um, um, so And then you can sort of type in whatever question you have, and it's simultaneously entered into all four chat windows. And you can see across all of them in, in one view uh, what they're doing. And this is implemented as a web app rather than an API access. Uh, so it's, this is different than net.dev, which is the other playground, or Vercel's um, AI playground. So these are, those two are AI projects that are driven by API. Whereas here, I'm actually using the full web view, which means that I get full access to all their features, including GPT-4 with web browsing, mm-hmm. which has no... Um, API access, like you have to use it through the app, right? Um, if you want to access your your chat history, y- you can only access it through the app. And I have the full chat history here because I've done this uh, because it's the full web app, right? So, uh, and I think it's good to have an intuition of what's changing. For example, Microsoft Bing will sometimes, if you ask the right question, will pop out images for you, right? Because they have Bing Image Creator, um, and it's just interesting to stay on top of it. If you're if you're in AI and you want to notice the differences between uh, ChatGPT and Bing and Bard and Claude. Uh, this is you should be running this at all times. But also you start noticing differences where ChatGPT is deficient and Claude is actually better or Bing's better or whatever. And also, I think it's just a good UX to have type in once and get four times the output. Yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, you're a. <laughs> I'm just thinking about like how expensive it is to run a query. You're, it's probably, you're getting it's probably four times the, I mean, four it's, times the bank for you're not paying for. Fuck. Yeah, it's 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 dollars. It's not. Yeah, it's not huge. You know, I'm not like I am. I am blasting this more just because it's more accessible. And something I, I do like about this is that sometimes the, the generations do take a while to generate. And because it's a menu bar app that's always live, I can access it with a, with a single keystroke. Right, I can. I can just pull it out with a single keyboard shortcut. Yeah, it just comes, so it, pops in. Again, good front end developer experience. Like, <laughs> yes. essentially, if you make things easier to use, people will use them more frequently. And exactly. one of the hassles that I I find is I don't have OpenAI on my phone. I just uh, I've got like a little Alfred shortcut. I just type GPT, and it and it opens up, and I can I can type it. But I'm still in their web experience. And there are little usability things like it doesn't automatically select the text box. Sometimes you'll click out of yeah. it. And you can fix all of that. Yes, as a JavaScript developer, you're very empowered to do it. You know, you won't make a lot of money doing it. You know, going back to our previous conversation. Yeah, but you, the user experience will be so much better. Yeah, and you have another thing that you've built as well. Yeah, uh, small developer. So the, there's basically a small set of tools that I'm developing uh, under the, the, the small AI brand that I'm building, right? Um, so there's small developers, small loggers, small menu bar, and small talk. Um, small developer is the biggest one, though. This, this one's about currently, as a time recording, crossing 10,000 GitHub stars. And basically, this is a tool for whole program synthesis. Um, so whole program synthesis, essentially having an LLM create all the code necessary to run the entire application. Yeah. Um, and right now, people have used it to create um, Chrome extensions, ChatGPT plugins, VS Code plugins, Pokemon apps, always your favorite. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, Gotta catch them all. VS Code extensions and, uh, and some other videos that, that, that they've done. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting toy. It's still not very good yet. Um, you still have to kind of wrangle it quite a bit. Um, but it is the basis of um, starting to go from whole uh, uh, giant prompts. So when people think about prompts, they think about single paragraphs. Uh, but if you go to the prompts.md file here, it's a giant markdown file with instructions, with code that I want you to use, with animations, right? Um, I have never learned, I've never really learned CSS animations, and now I don't have to because I can just ask for a CSS animation of... Uh, the 10 pixel tall rounded CSS animated red and white candy stripe loading indicator and I just write that in English and it just figures out that yeah. uh, what the CSS is. And GPT-4 has been very good for me. Like I frequently will say like, hey, I need to create a regular expression or I need to create a, a conditional highlighting you know, function for uh, Excel or something like that, right? And so for little things that I trust that I can easily just plug in and verify that they work, I'll, I'll frequently use that. But you have essentially wholly outsourced the development <laughs> of this. So there's a video link that I'll, I'll link to. Uh, I don't I don't know if it's cool with you if I, yeah, yeah, if I spoil what happens, though. But uh, toward the end of this small developer, um, you realize that the application itself was written by an LLM. Yeah. Yeah. And that is is really cool. Uh, so, I mean, I think this is a, a glimpse of the future. I'm actually about to rewrite this thing, so it might be slightly different by the time that, that you see it. Um, but uh, uh, I think that, and this comes to a question that, that you, you, you're interested in, people who wield this AI stuff, if you can code, you'll be so much more powerful than people who cannot code. And I had a woman come to one of my events uh, come up to me, introduce herself. She was very impressed with my demo, and then she said, "I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all in on AI, but I can't code. Uh, what do I do?" 
and you know, I gave her some some thoughts of like, oh yeah, you can do some prompt engineering, you can like, um, you know, create write some creative fiction. But to myself, I was thinking, wow, you, you there's not that much. You're completely at our mercy. <laughs> yeah, because these developers, it's developers who can wield these APIs and combine them with code and run code from uh, chat and um, you know and write code from chat that are going to rule the universe. Um, so it's, it's going to be extremely important to know how to code and to know how to inspect code. Maybe not write it from scratch because the, the LLMs are very good at writing from scratch, but to be able to inspect it and to instruct it on what to change such that it produces running code. And guess what? That's the job of a senior developer anyway. Yeah, I mean, I could tell, like, this might seem totally tangential and random, but I spent 20 years learning Chinese, like Mandarin. Oh, yeah. And when I went to China back in like 2003, um, I had to like use a pencil and paper and like write out characters individually and memorize the stroke order yeah. and all that stuff. And now when I need to write something in Chinese, the kind of like text prediction in Chinese has gotten so good yeah. that I can just type in pinyin. And yeah. uh, then I, of course, I still read the, the the characters to make sure they're correct. It's mostly but right. I don't have to remember exactly mostly right, how yeah. to write everything, and it speeds everything up. Yeah. So and they even got the audio transcription really well. You can like just kind of talk, and it transcribes it. Yeah. And for those who don't know, Chinese has a lot of uh, homonyms, like words that sound the same that are completely different. Yeah. There's only like 400 distinct <laughs> morphemes or phonemes. Or, I can't remember the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but uh, and each of them are distinct words. You don't like, like SHI. Yeah. yeah. The, the sure. There's like. There's like literally four or five hundred characters that are commonly used. That are oh, my favorite is uh, my and my. This is uh, this is what I least love telling my finance friends. Buy and to sell. Yes, they're, the words for buy and exactly sell exactly the same. But yes, you can imagine yourself in like a heated like, and you're in the finance trading floor. You're yelling and you're like, I my my deal. and you're like uh, buy or sell. I don't know. And you think that that detail is very important. Uh, so uh, in in my like goodness. professional finance, I can only finance, imagine how many catastrophic. Well, they they use different terms because yeah. it's oh, so okay. it, it, like yeah even the chinese are like yeah, let's not deal with this nonsense <laughs> <laughs> okay cool well reason has prevailed so and you know we have these typing contests like who can type the fastest and believe it or not like chinese went from like one of the slowest languages so, you could possibly yeah. type in yeah they spent so much time and energy like really getting good at predictive mm. text input mm. that now the fastest typists in the world are all like typing in chinese wow that's surprising yeah I saw it like it's it's incredibly fast uh, because the tools themselves have improved, and so that might seem like a silly kind of like tangent, but I think that to some extent, just being able to recognize that code is is right and look at it and like just instinctively because you spend so much time writing code, uh, you'll be very quick to be able to evaluate the quality of code, and it'll it'll tighten the feedback loop with it when when you don't have to like go and run the code, um, yeah. I suspect that spending all the time getting really good at like Python scripting or JavaScript scripting will ultimately, you know, yield a whole lot of benefit over time as opposed to just going the rest of your life without being able to do that right. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, and, you know, there's this question about Python or JavaScript, right? Like maybe you, uh, a lot of machine learning code, a lot of demos come out in Python first. Um, and I would say that I have been quite swayed by the Python community. Um, I think that um, 
the default Python ecosystem is just great. Um, it is very alien to a JavaScript developer. Um, the Python dependency situation is worse than the JavaScript situation, which is pretty bad. <laughs> but uh, you just kind of live with it. And also, I think there's a lot of opportunity to be had in bringing over Python concepts to JavaScript developers who are equally interested in AI. So uh, that's something that I'm working on myself. Interesting. So to, to be clear, you're working on essentially making it easier for JavaScript developers to, to do have scientific same, computing? Yeah, to, to, to have the same level of uh, you know, tooling and experience that the, that the Python developers already have. Uh, and that's a very simple task, and you know, no one's doing it quite right. Vercel is starting to do it, uh, and so I need to compete with them a little bit. Yeah. So a lot of people... Uh, and you and I had some burritos earlier. Thanks for the burrito. Yeah, uh, we had some burritos at the taqueria down downstairs in the mission. You know your authentic California style burritos that I love. And one of the things I told you about is that I've, I've experienced a lot more people than normal coming and saying, "Should I still learn to code, or should I just plan on coding be solved?" Uh, in the sense that, you know, technically, I guess you wouldn't need to learn shorthand. If you needed to take notes real quick, you just probably like get better at typing or use predictive text and you know type in Chinese. I don't know. You'd have to learn Chinese to be able to do that. But uh, but there used to be this whole system called shorthand, and mm. it was a skill that if you were like um, you know an executive assistant or something like that, you would learn how to write like really quickly. Or stenography, you're you're using like a, a typewriter to type. Really, yeah, and it's a special typewriter that has much fewer keys than normal because they have tokens. Tokenized words. Tokenized words. Yeah, it's exciting. And this is ancient technology that a lot of people, you know, used to learn to be able to get their job done. Uh, they quit teaching cursive in school, right? Because the idea is, while well, you're typing, you can type way faster than you can write with yeah. a pen anyway. It's a sign if you're a millennial if, is if you know cursive. <laughs> yeah, man, I did not like learning cursive, and I have not written for a cursive, written cursive for a day of my life after I got out of that, that third was, grade class yeah, when I had to yeah, learn it. Yeah. But, but my point is, like, I think a lot of people may, I mean, in my opinion, misunderstand the situation and may think that coding is a skill like, you know, cursive. writing shorthand or yeah. writing cursive or no, something like not. that, and, and fundamentally, yeah. mi- fundamentally misunderstand what coding is. And why it's so valuable. So uh, you and I were talking about what percent... Okay, so this new role. First, let's talk about this new role that you think is emerging. Yeah. AI engineer. Yeah. What is an AI engineer? uh, By the way, I went through a lot of alternative names for this before selling on this one. Uh, An AI engineer is a software engineer who's specialized in AI. Just like a data engineer is a software engineer who's specialized in data, or a DevOps engineer is a software engineer who's specialized in DevOps and infrastructure, right? It is a subspecialty of software engineers can do everything, but at some point when the tooling is specialized enough, when the needs or community is specialized enough, it starts to warrant a, a separate term than the standard catch all phrase of software engineer. And that is different from ML engineer and machine and, and ML researcher or research scientist as they call it. Uh, and those are more established roles that uh, large model like OpenAI would have. Um, so uh, maybe I can make the case for uh, what they would do separately. So ML researcher would be creating the models and designing the training parameters for them. Um, and honestly doing the training and the evals and writing the papers and so on and so forth. Like they are 
responsible for pushing the frontiers of uh, what is possible. Um, the ML engineer is often paired with the ML researcher to make their work possible, uh, to make their work scalable. Um, instead of training, so let, let's say the ML researcher is responsible for training, the ML engineer might be res- more responsible for inference, right? So uh, basically for, from uh, make, creating the model to serving the model to others, um, and maybe may also creating the, the pipelines that feed into the model. Um, and so all these are very well-established terms, um, and nobody's, nobody's uh, really disputing that. Uh, right now, and, and uh, honestly, there's there's a much larger community that that I'm not very uh, proficient in. Um, but then uh, the thing that's happening now is that the pre- prevalence prevalence of foundation models like GPT, like Anthropic Claude, and, and when you say foundational model, what exactly does that mean? <clears throat> yeah, foundation models are large pre-trained models that are general purpose in nature um, that are offered up for use. Uh, to other people. So usually in, in the old machine learning paradigm, which is quote-unquote software 2.0, um, that's an essay, by the way, if, if you want to read up on it. Software 2.0. already linked it in the show notes. Um, traditionally, machine learning would be done in-house on in-house data. So you would, be, you would need to be like a PayPal or like a YouTube. You would sit on a mountain of data and you would be like, I would need to reduce fraud or I need to recommend videos to people. So you, you get all the data in one place, you hire a bunch of machine learning engineers and researchers and put them together and then create an algorithm to optimize the fraud or the recommendation rate, uh, success rate, whatever that is. Uh, and then you just feed that in and throw it over the wall to the software engineers to, to write the, the pretty UI on top of it. Um, which is, it sounds dismissive, but uh, you know, obviously there's, there's more to it than that. Um, now, the large model labs are essentially their you know, ML research team as a service because they're, they've gotten so big. When we say large, we mean large. Um, when we talk when we talk about a typical data set for large language models, we're talking trillions of tokens. When we're talking about compute budgets for training a single run of these things, uh, we, they can be between fifty to one hundred million dollars per run. Uh, that is not something a normal team at any regular company is going to going to going to have. You need to essentially centralize that spend and then offer and rent it out. Uh, as APIs, and so this is a capex versus opex question for those capital expenditures versus operating expenditures. Operating expenditures, right? Uh, instead of spending a whole, uh, instead of sp- spending a little bit in house up front, you spend a whole chunk of money and and, and sort of amortize that over uh, a lot of people using that. Uh, and so essentially, what Anthropic, OpenAI, uh, Cohere, and Inflection, all the other research labs are doing is they are outsource research labs where, where, where they've now chosen to rent out, rent out their models and train their models and, and rent out their models um, for, for, for us. Like, so I can now access and generate tokens for $2 per million tokens. Right? That's so cheap. But I didn't have to spend the $50 million up front. Like, I'm, I'm trading that CapEx, right. the $50 million, for OpEx, which is $2, $2 per million tokens. Um, and they're going to make money on the, in the long run because of all the people using them. Uh, but because they made something valuable, people are going to do it. Um, but the whole point being that the ML researcher and ML engineer, the ML team, used to be in-house. The data used to be in-house. Now that is outsourced to, to, a, to, a, to a central team because that, that is capable of handling the scale that these models need to have. They serve it as an API, and now the AI engineer is going to specialize and know how to take over from that API onwards uh, to do that specialized thing, whether it's prompting or EI UX or creating uh, document retrieval and, and, and chat. 
um, or agents, anything of that sort. Um, the AI engineer is a brand of soft, is a type of software engineer that is well versed in the research and the tooling and the news and the uh, up and the sort of production requirements of these things um, to build these systems um, that uh, the output of these large research labs. Right. So essentially, an AI engineer is just a regular software engineer who also happens to be very good with. A specific set of yeah. APIs. Which was chosen to specialize in this set of APIs. Chosen to specialize in this set of tooling. It's just like, uh, like, a, like, a, like we talked about before. Um, at some point, when your day-to-day becomes so different than a regular software engineer, you start to deserve a separate name. Yeah. You know what I mean? And if, if you're, you're spending you're speaking all day a different language, you're in different basically talking to AI, You want a name to refer to yourself. Yeah, exactly. And so I think uh, prompt engineer was the first iteration of this, where you only talk, where you only mess around with prompts. But now that coding has become so much, so important uh, in 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 the grand scheme of things, whether creating UI or agents or anything of that sort, or retrieving from vector databases, um, that becomes a whole discipline that isn't encapsulated by prompt engineering and is better called AI engineering. Yeah. So. Does this job exist yet? Like, could I go on Indeed.com and find a lot of roles for AI engineering? Just there was uh, some news article a few months ago where it's like prompt engineering. You can get paid three hundred thousand dollars a year if you're really good. Yes, I applied. Like I actually whisperer. interviewed for that job. Yeah, you did. Yeah, I didn't take it because I I, uh, I wanted to start a company. But uh, yes, it, it it is out there. Someone's taken that job. They're not very prominent yet, but uh, they're out there. Okay, so you think that it will become. Quite normal, just like somebody's looking for, you know, Not Kubernetes normal. expert or something like no, that. No, I, like, I I wouldn't put much more money on on AI engineering being a thing rather than prompt engineer. Okay, and AI engineering, just for the benefit, because this is a very practical nuts and bolts podcast. Like at the end of the day, most of the people who are listening to this have the goal of being able to work as software engineers, or if they're already working as software engineers, get an even better software engineering job. What would you say? Um, in terms of, like, how soon are these tools going to be mature enough and, and are employers going to be aware enough that these are valuable things that they should be hiring people to do? Yeah, so they, there are already people walking around with the title of AI engineer. Uh, this is not completely new. I'm not coining this. I'm just calling attention to it as a trend that's already happening yeah. in, in uh, currently about to kick off. Yesterday on Hacker News, uh, on the front page, I woke up one morning and find this question, ask Hacker News how to break into AI engineer engineering. I want to be an AI engineer. So people are already referring to their, this terminology without me, right? I'm just calling it like I see it. Okay. This, is a, this is a thing that is happening. Um, and, and so when, it, when does it become in high demand? I don't know, a year, two years from now? It's, it's going to happen. Yeah. Okay, and so, you know, I, I think it's like those this is uh, why Air pivot- Force recruitment. Pa- yeah. yeah, I pivoted <laughs> my I pivoted lane space. to those lane- who prepare for it today. Exactly. Lane, lane space uh, was like a gener- generic, like, you know, we're AI enjoyers. Like, we, we're just like, talk about all things AI, you know. And, and But now I've rebranded the whole thing to become a, the AI engineer podcast. Like, if you, if you are an AI engineer, you listen to this thing. Yeah. Great. Very I'm re- cool. I'm ready. For, for this wave. So to you're happen. betting, you're putting chips. I'm putting my chips. I bought the AI.engineer domain. Yeah, that's true. And I'm starting this uh, conference in October. I, I didn't even know they have a dot engineer TLD yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Top uh, level domain. Yeah, I'm, I'm creating a conference around it, um, you know, trying to collect the community around it because 
I am an AI engineer, like uh, you know, and I've met any other AI engineers that people want to be like, and I think that there's there's going to be enormous interest both on the employee side, like people wanting to become AI engineers because they just think it's a very interesting field to be in, and, and from the employer point of view, people wanting to hire uh, engineers who know how to wield AI effectively. Yeah. So, yeah. Like creating community is something that I do well, and and you know defining this and willing it into existence, I think is um, is is I think a, a worthy cause because there's something about um, machine learning and AI that is very gatekeepy. Um, well, the, the main reason I didn't go into it myself, I've been watching it from the sidelines, is because I didn't have a PhD, and I'm like I yeah. you know it seems like you need a lot of qualifications to do it, um, and just like Free Code Camp helped to break that notion apart and say you can get you can get jobs in this without a cs degree i think the same thing is happening for the phd and, and ai right um you, you still need quite a lot more education than you than you use that you might need for a regular software job um like it, i do i do personally highly recommend some math some linear algebra nothing crazy first year undergrad nothing crazy and you know not, no no not nothing crazy in calculus wise but really you know the first response is what I'm trying to, to react to here on the Hacker News okay, post. Okay, yeah, and let's, let's, right? let's read it. This um, is uh, some random Hacker News poster that we, we could probably see there. This um, is the response to how to break into AI engineering. Yeah. He says, you must learn deep learning specialization by Andrew Ang on Coursera, uh, IBM data science professional certificate. You need differential calculus. You need linear algebra. You need uh, STAT 101. You need PyTorch really You need to learn PyTorch really well. Um, then you then now you know you have to be competitive as a physics undergrad whatever right like there's a lot of um this that actually is not really necessary <laughs> yeah if you talk if i when i talk to the AI engineers that like are doing really really well here they don't know any of this they'll probably tell you they don't know how a transformer works they know how to use it right just like a top tier race car driver you know, has no idea how to how an engine works. I mean, some idea. They they don't know how to make an, but an they, engine from could scratch. They, could they build it from scratch? Yeah, could they fabricate they could not. an engine? No, they could not. But, but they could tell you the an differences. An automotive engineer probably could, or yeah, an automotive exactly. You know, exactly. Somebody who designs engines. So the the race car driver just needs to know the differences and and uh, between cars and like what those differences mean for how he's going to handle it to achieve the task. Right. The the job. Um, of the the ML researcher ML engineers to be responsible for the models, but the job of the software engineer is to turn that raw capability into a business yeah. relevant outcome. And and that's where the classic divide between science and engineering comes down. Always it's like has engineering been. is where science always has gets been. applied, where yes. the pavement where the rubber hits the road, right? Yeah, it's engineering. It's not glamorous. It's not like you're not inventing some basic fundamental cs theorem here you're a technician ultimately like you're you you come here with a set of tools and some some training and like you know how to apply it to common situations great you can get hired yeah and and this is where i tell people a lot of times like with traditional software engineering i talk to people who all the time used to be mechanics and work at like an automotive shop yeah or used to uh work on hvac systems or something like that i tell mm. them you know you'd be surprised how much parallel there might be between what you were previously doing and what you're learning these new skills to do in terms yeah. of managing these systems and grabbing off-the-shelf tools and yeah. using them. If, if you want to be good, you should learn a bit the fundamentals. You should, learn, you should go down one level of abstraction if you want to be really, really good. But to be proficient and to get hired, you don't have to do yeah. that. 
And I, what I tell people is I always err on the side of overtraining, but you shouldn't spend like years um, learning math without going out there and applying for jobs. Try to get a developer job uh, or an AI engineering job and backfill. Yep. Is, is, and that's where I want to jump to some scenarios. So generally, I would break the Free Code Camp community down into three large categories of people. One, people who are career changers. They, you like know, myself. They, yeah, exactly. You were in finance. Two, people who are going to school uh, with the intention of actually getting a job as a developer or in some tech-related field. Maybe they're studying computer science or a related field or an engineering field. And three, mid-career software engineers who've been doing this for a while, but you know, the field is constantly changing. So what would your advice be to a career changer as far as like what to prioritize if they wanted to become an AI engineer? Um, do free code camp. Because, you know, I, I, I told Chrissy before this recording, I think 90% of it stays the same. Um, all you have to do is just add a little bit more AI experience to your CV and then you can be hired as an AI engineer because the bar is pretty low. Why? Because this industry is super new. So not nobody has that many levels of experience. Just so you know, the, the Transformer is six years old. GPT-3 is three years old. ChatGPT is not even a year old. So just there's nobody on earth who has more experience than that, right? Um, so you can you can overcome it if you just you know move fast and and uh, maybe not break things, but uh, you know uh, break your mind as to what your limits are, and then just uh, try harder to, to to embrace the AI APIs that are out there. Okay, and now for somebody who's already learning a lot of programming and math, computer yeah. science, they're doing a computer science degree. Maybe like I talked to. Oh, a woman earlier, I was at a cafe and she's like, Oh, are you, do you work with Free Code Camp? She was using Free Code she's Camp. Like, she I am Free Code Camp. Getting ready. <laughs> <laughs> do you know who you're talking to? Hello. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I, she was doing her CS degree. Yeah. And uh, cool. she's, she's finishing up and she wants to get a job as a software engineer. Yeah. Um, honestly, the standard recruiting routes out of college are really, really good. Right? Okay, that, those for are the software engineering for for working as an AI engineer. Oh, it's AI. Engineer. Like what? What uh, additional things demos. should they build? Demos, build really, build impressive, cool demos that get noticed on honestly Twitter or YouTube or LinkedIn, um, because the demos get you invites to, to chat, and sometimes they turn into full jobs. And yeah, uh, you you have everything that you need. You you know uh, you don't have to. I think you you want to maybe like read up on rec- more recent capabilities. I think uh, the interesting student groups that I see that are self forming and doing interesting work are doing some of the best work out there, like groundbreaking, c- cutting edge industry stuff. So the Stanford group uh, created Alpaca and, and Vicuña, um, and uh, I think LM Sys out of Berkeley also did uh, the Chat Leaderboard and. Uh, fast chat, which is like a commoditized uh, open source language model API thing. Um, these students are just, they're, they're not asking for permission from anyone. They're just going ahead and, and building these, these systems. And, and you know, while you're still in school, you can get the support of your professors, right? This is a very rare time because they, they are, they're paid to, to listen to you and, and, and to talk to you. Once you graduated, they're not going to give you as much time of, of, uh, out of the, their day. Yeah. Office hours are criminally underutilized. Oh, totally, totally underutilized. Nobody goes to them. Right. And if you are the one student in your class who is on a first name basis with your prof 
And if you can figure out some way to become like an, like I became one of my professor's interns, basically. Yeah. He, he just like, I, I hung out and did work for him yeah. for like an entire school year. Yeah. The, the, you know, the thing is like, and I, and I was one of those too, and it's just not socially cool to do it because you, you know, all your friends are out partying and you're in some professor's office doing work for him uh, or her. And it's just not fun, except for the part where you get to learn a lot more from someone who's extremely experienced and potentially can provide you a reference for grad school if you want to go to grad school um, or to just opportunities that they have. A lot of these professors, particularly computer science professors, their former students are now like big deals in industry. Yeah, there's that Stanford professor who's a yes. billionaire because his uh, students... Is that Chris Ray? Yeah, the the guy who uh, funded Google <laughs> essentially. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like some of the, some of his yeah, students. Yeah, there's, like, there's a guy who like wrote like hundred k into Google. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Chris Ray is, is is my my like my guy to watch because any every single one of his grad students go on to do amazing things. Okay, Chris um, Ray, I'll check him out. Um, but no, no, seriously. So like, if the prof- professor likes you enough, he probably has somebody in, in his or her network that uh, would hire you just off the recommendation of their former favorite professor, right? So don't underestimate your professors for being professional networks. Awesome. And then finally, the mid-career software engineer, maybe they've got a a few years in the trenches and they're looking at these AI tools and they're not sure, like, is this a threat? Is this an opportunity? What? How how would you be doing? I mean, obviously, you just did this. Yeah. <laughs> so you, can say, you can speak with some Mid-career. degree of authority, but, uh, but how yeah. would you advise them to proceed? Honestly, just also just building a lot. Um, having hackathons helped me because that's just a limited time period to build something with uh, with a limited set of tooling. Um, so maybe join a hackathon or two or organize your own, not to be honest. Um, we're actually working on a course. Uh, <laughs> I haven't announced this at all, so this is the first anyone's hearing about it. Um, Layton Space University, LSU. Ah, it's to meant to trigger. With Louisiana yeah, State. yeah, yeah, yeah. We're sure actually gonna, thrilled. We're, we're, we're trying to pick the same colors just to trigger them. Just why not? <laughs> no such thing as bad publicity when this is concerned. Um, but uh, yeah, we we have a little course going for converting existing software engineers to AI engineers, um, and it's just a little sampling menu essentially of a modality per day where you build an interesting chatbot with uh, with uh, tools and and the stuff that you need to know, um, and it will just ex- exploration pass for for further exploration. So, awesome. So. Um, that or one of the many other courses out there will get you up to speed. Um, I think uh, deeplearning.ai is what I would recommend for existing software engineers. Um, that is Andrew Ng, the former head of Google Brain. Mm-hmm. Um, he's done a few courses with Hugging Face, with Langchain, uh, with Pinecone that uh, you, sh- you can check out. Uh, but mostly you're fully qualified to be an AI engineer. You just need to immerse. And after a while, if you know all the names and nothing new faces you, then you've become one. That's powerful right there. If you know all the names, can you repeat what you just said? <laughs> yeah, if, if you if you immerse into, it's like learning a new language, right? If you if you know all the the things that you need to to get by on a daily basis, and you know all the top trends and projects and tools to use to get anything that your boss wants done, then you've become an AI engineer. Yeah, there's, you don't need somebody to come and like smash no a bottle of champagne against you and christen yeah. you an AI engineer. I mean, I'll you, do it. You know, pay me enough, I'll do it. <laughs> you don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to hurt you. Yeah. No, uh, that's very cool. And it's interesting that you mentioned hackathons because I know you've got to run to a hackathon in a moment. Yeah. But I want to make sure that we, we've covered everything. We, we can definitely have you back on. I'm excited about all the change that's happening in the space. 
of all the APIs that you use and the tools that you use, obviously you just showed me the tool that, that leveraged four different uh, APIs. Which ones do you find most immediately useful? Mm. Um, I mean, it's got to be the OpenAI API. You have to start there because um, that is the most important one. That is the most capable one. Right now, most people have GPT 3.5 access, um, and then you can join a hackathon or two to get GPT 4 access, which is way better. Um, by the way, fun fact, the reason that OpenAI released ChatGPT with no pre-announcement, no, drop, no f- warning, uh, and they, they often say that they were surprised by it, is because OpenAI had GPT 4 internally for months. And so they were releasing the previous version and they thought it was like not going to be that special because they, they knew the difference. But the rest of us hadn't seen it before. And so we, like, the, the world went on fire in November last year when, uh, when, they were, when it was released. And opening, I was like, we were completely not ready for this, the scale of this, uh, this event. Um, but yeah, so start with OpenAI. Um, then start building like chat systems. You can pull in Langchain if you want. That's the Tell me what one. Langchain is. Langchain is essentially jQuery for uh, AI applications. It is a collection of tools that are commonly used, like uh, character text splitting, like data loaders, um, and like uh, React uh, patterns that have been validated in papers and just uh, implemented as tested code inside of an application. So a lot of people right now use it for prototyping apps. And sometimes um, if they have the needs that are differ, differ enough from Langchain, they'll actually move off of Langchain uh, towards their self-implemented stuff. Um, and that's the state of the art right now. And, and you know, Langchain's an enormously successful company. Um, but like just like jQuery, started eventually to have competition. I do expect other competition to rise up to compete in terms of the, the level of abstraction that you work at, the bundle tooling that uh, the engineer is uh, supposed to work with. So um, Llama Index is, is, the, is another one that is uh, more focused on data retrieval and, and indexing. There's also guardrails, which... Uh, and, uh, just just to pause on Llama. So you're saying data retrieval and indexing. When you say indexing, you mean taking your own data and putting it into... Into a, in a database for retrieval when you create your own chat GPT for your own documents. Like if you want to survey your company Slack or Notion or Discord or Discord or anything, anything of that sort. Uh, quick question, because you were about to go on, but I do want to talk about Llama for a second. And the idea of having like domain-specific or company-specific LLMs, do you think that this is something people should invest a lot of time and energy in and trying to like get that running locally and maybe put all their emails into it or put... Just, you know, seed or index a whole lot of, uh, you know, data that may be proprietary to them that they can potentially, that, do you think that'll be more useful than using the foundational LLMs in a lot of cases? Or do you think uh, it's... This is just, it, it is useful. I don't know if it's more useful than another. That's a difficult value judgment to make. It's just more of like a maturity progression. First start with the foundational models, then do the company-specific stuff. Then do you know whatever comes next? In terms of employment, and of course, I know that you know you're not an economist or anything. But how quickly do you predict that those types of you know just making the full usage of those foundational models? How many of the jobs do you think are going to revolve around that versus how many of the jobs do you think are going to be like, hey, we need to create our own? Internal LLM because we're the Department of Defense, or or we've we're working on like something that has some security clearance, or we're working with like 
HIPAA compliant, HIPAA being yeah. a big law. The, the company is doing States. all every single one of those things you just mentioned. Okay, <laughs> and and they're developing products around that, or yeah. are individual hospital chains, you know, developing their own systems? Uh, I don't know. That that that, that is uh, surprisingly enough something I've chosen. One of those things I've chosen to not specialize in. So yeah. you'd have to yeah, ask someone. You said earlier you're not interested in medical imaging, for example. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, look, I'm I'm casually interested in it. I'm just not the best person for it. Right. Right. And you got to pick your so battles. Some, like you got to pick your battles. Someone else will do it better than I can, and you should go listen to them. Uh, there's a, there's a guy Tanishk Abraham who. Uh, by the way, you have a doppelganger. Do you know that? Somebody who looks like me or no, has the same thing? Somebody who does the same thing as you, but in AI. Ah. It's Jeremy Howard. Have you met him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fast AI guy. Yeah, yeah. We published one of his courses on nice. Free Code Camp. Nice. He's a but cool he, guy. he is the Quincy Larson of AI. Okay. Like, like, well, like, it's like, you know, I will make AI training free and accessible. Like, that. that's him. Okay, cool. Well, yeah. I'm going to take it more seriously <laughs> well, now that I know. Well, maybe Quincy Larson can be Quincy Larson of AI. We're kindred spirits, apparently. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, but he, he, you know, one of his protégés has been Tanish Abraham, who's this 19 year old PhD. 19-year-old PhD. You have to do a lot of things right to, get your, to be a PhD. Uh, I feel like he may have cut some corners. Uh, his PhD is legit. I'm just saying, like, you don't not have a social life when you have a 19-year-old yeah, yeah, PhD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, um, uh, but he, yeah, he's chosen to be the medical imaging guy. So you should go talk to him. Okay. If, you know, well, like the I think he's in the Bay. I, I, I think he, he just graduated from his from his PhD. So uh, and he was in Berkeley. So okay, cool. Um, I'll look him up. Yeah, um, and and yeah, I mean, like, uh, yes, the DoD definitely has something going on there. Um, Bloomberg definitely has something going on there. Um, DoD is Department of Defense. <laughs> Sorry, exactly. I keep using that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's fine. Like this is fantastic, and is is all as it should be. You know, I think um, the the what's beautiful about this domain is that it's so new, but the research is relatively public, and anyone can with enough PhDs and enough years of experience implement these models. For the rest of us AI engineers who don't have the PhDs and don't have the money, we can use the models as given to us, whether it's open source or whether it's commercially available through an API, and build amazing products. The world needs more AI products that are more accessible, right? Like, you know, ultimately, uh, one of the most interesting implementations of GPT-4 is the multimodal version of GPT-4 with vision, which gives blind people the ability to see because it has perfect optical character recognition, is perfect uh, object recognition, and you can talk to it like you would to a guide, Except you don't need a guide anymore. You have an AI helping you, and like that's so cool. That's yeah. a, you know, there's there's a and, and there's a world in which you know your 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 like grandparents, like the the people like who are not tech savvy in your life, they just speak to an AI assistant um, that helps them with their daily chores and, and life, and honestly, just navigating with the technology, um, and that's great. That's that's a that's a world that can only be better. Absolutely. Well, I am heartened by your optimism. Thanks. And I think uh, there's a lot of doom and gloom out there and uh, again we've discussed earlier in the podcast that some of that may have an agenda behind it in terms of helping hype up and overstate the um, near-term capabilities of these systems but i think you and i could both agree that things are moving and that there's going to be a lot of utility from these in the near term and it's up to software engineers and people who want to get into software engineering to learn how to use these tools so then go and they can unlock that value and they can ultimately help people yeah. help older folks help people who can't see so thank you very much for giving us all this insight My into pleasure. 
where things are headed, uh, how quickly things are unfolding, things that even I wasn't unaware of. And I've listened to a lot, a lot of latent space podcasts. I've, I've been watching. Yeah. Uh, but usually we're just the interviewers, right? We don't yeah. get it. We don't get a chance to like editorialize. So this is great. Yeah. for having And me on. it is cool for me to be candid that like, I'm not an AI doomer, <laughs> not yeah. a near term AI doomer. I, yeah. I, I would I'm, actually, I'm actually fatalistic about this. Okay. Uh, do we want to go there quickly? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Okay, Why not? So, We've so, already got the, anybody who's still listening yeah. deserves this. Every time a more advanced civilization has come into contact with a less advanced civilization, the less advanced civilization has been basically nearly wiped out. Right? Like, and it could be intentional sometimes, or it could be unintentional. Like, oops, we brought, we brought you the, the plague, and we, we, yeah. had no, we had no idea. Oops. But like, uh, we are birthing a new intelligence you have to take this seriously that this is equivalent to evolution if you believe in evolution this this thing is evolution and it's uh, it's happening um and it will be more advanced than us it already knows way more than i will ever will know um and it's just not very good at it yet but it will um and so at some point um yeah this thing will will be superior to us and we will have to figure out how to survive with it uh and i don't know if uh, we will. So I'm, I'm like, I'm a doomer in that sense. I'm like, I'm a doomer in the sense that uh, I'm not optimistic about our chances against an advanced civilization, whether it's an alien or it's an, it's an alien from outer space or an alien that we made. Um, but it's an alien anyway that is, that is going to be more advanced than us. Um, I'm a doomer in the sense that we cannot stop it. Like unless you nationalize Microsoft and Google and OpenAI, you cannot stop this. And that we don't even know if the open source models are going to become powerful enough to become a superior civilization themselves. Yeah. Then it doesn't matter. Close or open. Like the, the, we're talking about the first model capable enough of uh, of um, having goals and objectives that are different from us, and we only have to miss slightly to accidentally wipe out life. I my perhaps somewhat naive, and I'm going to use a big word, Panglossian uh, perspective on this is that we're going to be much better equipped to, I guess, leverage and contain that technology that may just be an inevitability on a long enough time scale that, that humans are going to create this, that every yeah. uh, species creates this. If everybody is already using these tools and understands pretty well how they... like, Correct. It, If we are sufficiently enlightened civilization... That we're not daunted by this, and we're not, be- and it doesn't turn us into total intellectual lazy people. But rather, we use these tools to become smarter ourselves. You know, perhaps, you know, there's a merging of sorts in the sense that, like, I can talk to the AI all the time and, and just get information just in time, and it surfaces interesting things. I mean, we've already got recommendation algorithms, and you could argue that we already kind of lost the first. Battle with AI in the sense that, like... Oh, you know where we lost it the most? Uh, dating. Dating? Yeah. 80% of our, uh, you know, sexual matching and partners uh, decided by algorithms. So, and so, therefore, our DNA is being very slowly shaped by algorithms. It's interesting. Uh, I, met my I, know, I know you're a stud and you met your wife in a bar. No, I met my wife in grad school. In Thank grad you. school. Right? Yeah. I've so never that, used that, it the, the, way, the way that you know God intended, but you know, <laughs> yeah, the rest uh, of us were not so lucky. We use dating apps, and guess what? That's that's an AI. It's technically true that like the AI is potentially steering the course of your lineage. Hmm? That's kind of weird to think about. Humanity's DNA. 
Yeah. Not kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that was a weird thought to leave us on. But I, I was just going to say it, it, it's already been steering so, kind so, of the discourse. Like I, software I engineers stuff from, wield an enormous power yeah. because we don't like we don't think about like oh I just work at Tinder. No, you're shipping DNA. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Like I would imagine your job would take a certain solemnness to it. Like you, yeah. you'd be like I better yeah, do people, a good job. I, I think uh, there's uh, something I actually worry about is that. Ethics so is always left to the end of engineering courses. Uh, I don't know. I don't you know. Got if, design I don't know if FreeCodeCamp has a. I don't know if FreeCodeCamp has an ethics section. Okay, so yeah, fun segue. Yeah, we're developing this free four-year bachelor's in computer science, yeah. and there's a two-year associate of science in mathematics. Yeah, I love that precedes that. it. Love this, by the way. Best idea. Love Thank it. you. And we did a analysis of the top 20 CS programs in the United States, like Caltech, Stanford, MIT, Harvey Mudd. Only like one out of like maybe eight schools had an ethics course. Almost none of them had a security course. I could not believe you have to build security in. You have to build safety in from day one. Uh, that, That is my personal belief and, and well, i'll give you the the industry version of this uh so I, I did a study of career letters which i think you've you've seen before uh so out of like 20 something career letters that i surveyed only one of them had anything like security on their metric for you must be good at security in order to be promoted everyone else is just like you must ship good code uh so like only circle ci had like took security seriously enough to make an explicit requirement yeah well the industry is evolving. New norms are emerging. I hope after you know things like Cambridge Analytica, security is top of mind for a lot of people, and I'm hopeful that you know we're going to bake this into future models. Uh, I'm sure that they've done some stuff, but to some extent, they're they're knowns, they're unknowns, and then they're <laughs> unknown unknowns, right? And to some extent, we're probably going to deal with a lot of unknown unknowns that crop up in the future. Yeah, you better believe that free code camp, to the extent we can, we're going to be preaching the gospel of safety, security, privacy, all those virtues. And uh, I certainly hope that people that learn from free code camp and go join the industry are going to keep those things in mind as well. Amazing. Sean, it's been a blast. Been Thanks a blast. again. We got to do a, a high five. Yeah, it's yeah. high five there, right there. On air, high five. Thanks again. Have a fantastic time at the hackathon, and we will see you on a future podcast. Bye.